This is Jocko Podcast number 109 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. 1 September 1942, the army in the field. Comrade fighters, commanders, and political workers, heroic defenders of Stalingrad. The bitter fighting for the city of Stalingrad has been raging for months. The Germans have lost hundreds of tanks and planes. Hitler's brutalized hordes are advancing towards Stalingrad and the Volga over mountains of dead bodies of their own men and officers. Our Bolshevik party, our nation, our great country have given us the task not to let the enemy reach the Volga to to defend the city of Stalingrad. The defense of Stalingrad is of decisive importance for the whole Soviet front. Without sparing our strength and with scorn for death, we shall defy the Germans the way to the Volga and not give up Stalingrad. Each one of us must bear in mind that the capture of Stalingrad by the Germans and their advance to the Volga will give our enemies new strength and weaken our own forces. Not one step back. The War Council expects unlimited courage, tenacity, and heroism in the fight with the onrushing enemy from all the fighters, commanders, and political workers from all the defenders of Stalingrad. The enemy must and will be smashed on the approaches to Stalingrad. Forward against the enemy, up into the unremitting battle comrades for Stalingrad for our great country death to the German invader so that is a clearly a note from the general on the ground uh, the member of the war council of the Stalingrad and Southwest Front Lieutenant General Khrushchev sent to the troops obviously that were preparing to defend Stalingrad now there was another commander in the field by the name of Paulus and he sent a note to Hitler on 23 November 1942 my Fuhrer since receipt of your radio message of evening 2211, events have come thick and fast. We have not succeeded in closing the pocket to the southwest and west. Impending enemy penetrations begin to emerge there. Ammunition and fuel are coming to an end. Numerous batteries and tanks have shot themselves dry. A timely and adequate supply is impossible. The army will shortly be destroyed unless a concentration of forces succeeds in totally defeating the enemy attacking from the south and west. For this, we must immediately withdraw all forces from Stalingrad and strong detachments from the northern front. Unavoidable sequel must then be a breakout towards the southwest since eastern and northern front can no longer be held with such weak forces. In this case, we will lose much materiel, but the majority of the valuable combatants and at least a part of the materiel will be preserved. I retain full responsibility for this message, even if I add that Commanding Generals Heights, Strecker, Hube, Jacknell, Von Seidlitz all share 
this evaluation of the situation. Based on the situation, I again request freedom of action. Heil my Fuhrer. Signed, Paulus. So the Russians were effective in surrounding the Germans, the German Sixth Army, as a matter of fact, 250 to 300,000 men fully surrounded now by the Russians. Here's what Hitler wrote back. Sixth Army has been temporarily encircled by Russian forces. I intend to concentrate the army in the area Stalingrad North, Kotluban, Hill 137, Hill 135, Marinovka, Zebenko, Stalingrad South. The army may rest assured that I will do everything to bring supplies to it accordingly and relieve it in time. I know the brave 6th Army and its commander-in-chief, and I am sure it will do its duty. Signed, Adolf Hitler. So, and we'll get into this, Hitler over and over again is asked if the troops on the ground can try and escape from Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, he says, no, you cannot leave. You will fight to the last bullet. Mm-hmm. And on the 30th of January 1943, Hermann Goring, who is the Nazi Reichsmarshal of the entire German Reich, so he's the senior military man of the entire German army from 1940 until the end of the war. And even though Stalingrad had not fallen yet, he gave this speech about their sacrifice of these German soldiers. And he gave it, and it was obviously heard on the radio, etc. And it spread. And actually, the soldiers on the ground in Stalingrad, the German soldiers heard this speech. Hmm. And again, we'll get more to what the reactions were, but I'm going to read that part of that speech right now. It made one shudder. But Stalin had enormous masses at his disposal and used old men, women, and children and did not bother about supplies or sufficient food or transport. The Russians used the whip or the bullet. The Germans alone could resist and could wrestle with such an adversary. Everything depended on them. With the greatest respect to other nations, the Germans are the only ones in Europe in a position to break Russia and destroy Bolshevism. Of all the terrific battles... The battle for Stalingrad stood out like a gigantic monument which would one day be regarded as the greatest and most heroic battle in German history. So he's referring to this in the past tense once again. Mm. This this hasn't been, this hadn't finished yet, but he's referring to it like it's in the past tense. Mm -hmm. Because for all practical purposes, it was. Back to the document, every German soldier would come to pronounce the word Stalingrad with holy awe and remember that it was there that Germany set the seal of final victory because people that fought like that must win. Germany has now become the guarantor of European freedom, culture, and life. But for the fighters of Stalingrad, the Russians might have obtained their objective. Now they are too late. The defenders of Stalingrad had obeyed the law which everyone must obey, the law to die for Germany. 
This law was not only binding on soldiers, but on the whole German nation. The nation must not question whether its stand at Stalingrad has been necessary or not. The law had ordered them to do so. So here he's saying, don't question. Don't question the sacrifice of 250,000 men. Don't question it. It was of no concern to the German soldier whether he died at Stalingrad in the African desert or Norway. He always sacrificed himself so that his nation might live. In hours, when some people perhaps tried to install morbid and sly thoughts into your brains, then we must always look at the Fuhrer, their shining and greatest example. They could believe that the Almighty had led this man, a God-sent man, to pass through innumerable dangers and become greater and greater all for nothing. That providence had given them this man who had made them into the strongest nation in the world. These are guarantees that justify our belief in victory. So we're talking about Hitler here, by the way, Mm -hmm. as a God-sent man. In difficult times, a real leader is tested and people prove their worth in hard trials. I, the commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe, suffered exceptionally when I heard of the results of the bombings. And although I did my best to prevent it from happening, it must be recognized as unavoidable and must not influence our will for resistance. We know a tremendous heroic song from a match without equal that was called the Battle of the Nibelungs. They too stood in a hall of fire and fire, quenching their thirst with their own blood, but fought and fought to the last. Such a fight is raging there today because a people who can fight like that must win. And before these men, a millennia, Previous, there stood in a small gorge in Greece an infinitely brave and daring man with his 300. Leonides stood with 300 Spartans from a tribe known for its bravery and boldness. And an overwhelmingly numerical superior enemy attacked and attacked and attacked again and again. Even then it was a rush from the Asian East against the Nordic people. Huge numbers of men were available to Xerxes, but the 300 men did not waver or falter, fighting a losing battle, hopeless but not meaningless. And then the last man fell. And in this bottleneck, there is a sentence. Wanderer, if you come to Sparta, report that you had seen us lying here as the law commanded. They were 300 men, my comrades, and millennia have passed, but today that battle, that sacrifice still counts as the greatest example of heroic soldiering. And today this fight is there. This sacrifice is there in Stalingrad. And one day it will be said, if you go to Germany, tell them you have seen us lying in Stalingrad as the law commanded us to protect the security of our people.
And as I said, those were the words of Hermann Goring, who was the senior officer of the German military at that time. And those were his words. And of course, his words were lies. All of them were lies, and no one knew that better than the men on the ground in and around the Russian city of Stalingrad, nearly 1,500 miles away from Berlin, freezing, starving, surrounded, low on ammunition, lacking medical supplies, and lacking cold weather gear, and lacking any kind of real leadership. And they also served in a nation that lacked the moral high ground. As a matter of fact, their nation's leaders lacked any kind of morality at all, and this is clear in the aggression that they unleashed in the world and the atrocities that they committed in mass murder of millions of people, and it's clear that they had no morality whatsoever based on how they treated their own soldiers who, like many soldiers, were men that were fighting not for political powers or for political ideals created in an ivory tower thousands of miles away from them, but for the ideals of a soldier himself. Duty and courage and honor, that's what soldiers fight for and the ultimate thing that they fight for as we have heard time and time again, is for their brothers on the line with them to their left and to their right. And one of those men was named Joachim Weider. He was an intelligence officer in the 8th Corps of the German 6th Army. And he wrote about his experiences in a book called Stalingrad, Memories of Hell, where he recalls what he and other German soldiers went through physically, mentally, and spiritually as they were abandoned by their leaders, as they were abandoned by life, and as they were abandoned by hope itself. Let's go to the book. Again, this is Joachim Weider. And the book is called Stalingrad Memories of Hell. After meticulous preparations of gigantic proportions, the Russians, with their overwhelmingly superior armor and cavalry forces, attacking like lightning from the north and the following day from the east, pressed our entire 6th Army into an iron vice. Within three days, the encircling ring was closed at Kalach on the Dan and con- on the Don and constantly reinforced. 
Stunned, we stared at our situation maps on which menacing thick red lines of encirclement and arrows showed the enemy attacks, penetrations, and directions of advance. We had never imagined a catastrophe of such proportions to be possible. The mighty wedges of the Russian armored columns could not be stopped and a myriad of highly mobile cavalry troops increased the muddle and confusion in the rear of the bloody rent front of the army. So, you know, obviously I skipped a little bit moving into this port point, but at this point they're completely surrounded, like I said, cut off, and the Russians are applying the pressure. The enemy appeared to be systematically evading our blows and to be withdrawing into the depths of Russia. So this is going, he's kind of reflecting back on how they ended up there. And he says that, he says, the enemy appeared to be systematically evading our blows and to be withdrawing into the depths of Russia. This is what the Russians do. It's what they did in Napoleon in 1812. And they're doing it again here. And he Back to the book, taken as a whole, this was a masterpiece of general staff thinking. Today, I am convinced that those withdrawals of what Russian forces during the summer of 1942 were an outstanding enactment of traditional war, Russian war tactics. So Hitler got lured in and they didn't pay attention. They didn't reflect on history. And as we all, well, as most people know, this was also Hitler opening another front and trying to fight on multiple fronts at the same time, which which goes against a, a certain law of combat called prioritize and execute. Mm-hmm. Focus your, your forces on your most important thing and then move on. Hitler gets an F on prioritize and execute. Mm-hmm. Back to the book. It had now come to pass. We were actually caught in a trap. How were we to get out? Serious is the situation in the pocket. He refers to this area as the pocket. This is the pocket of Russian soldiers. Serious as the situation in the pocket was from the very outset. In our bunker, there was still an atmosphere of confidence and a certain feeling of superiority. So that's, by the way, that's how you end up in these situations. Mm. And the Germans absolutely believed their own propaganda, that they were the best soldiers and that they were the master race and that the, these Bolsheviks couldn't fight them. Mm. When you believe that, you think you can march right into Stalingrad and take it. Mm-hmm. And the winter's not going to bother you. Admittedly, an eerie memory arose within me and intensified my amp- apprehensive unrest with each passing day. It was the memory of several fanatical statements that Hitler had recently made in public speeches. The German soldier, he said, now stood on the Volga and no power on earth could make him leave. The supreme warlord, that's a reference to Hitler, the, and he's got it in quotes, the supreme warlord had emphatically committed himself, he had prophesied and demanded that Stalingrad be relentlessly attacked and taken. In presumptuous terms, he had even sworn before God and history never again to relinquish on this conquest, presenting it as already achieved. With such an attitude as this, on the part of the supreme warlord was giving up the Volga and retreating conceivable at all. So Hitler had painted himself into a corner with a paintbrush of arrogance and it ended up in the situation where he's saying, nope, we're never gonna leave. And 
He does not. Back to the book. The fate of more than a quarter million human beings was decided over such a distance. So the, the Fuhrer headquarters is 2,000 miles, 2,000 kilometers. It's like 1,500 miles distant away. And they're making decisions. This is called micromanagement. Mm. <clears throat> By the way, this is called micromanagement. This is not decentralized command. This is the fourth law of combat from the book called Extreme Ownership. Yeah. Hitler gets an F <clears throat> on decentralized command. Mm-hmm. He's micromanaging his troops that are 1,500 miles away. The fate of more than a quarter million human beings was decided over such a distance. From there, Hitler repeatedly addressed orders and appeals directly to, Stalingr- to the Stalingrad army, which had been removed from under the command of Army Group B and reassigned to the newly formed Army Group Don. And the Don, D-O-N, is a river. Now, <clears throat> Everybody knew that they needed to perform a military maneuver referred to as a breakout, which means you picture you're in a circle, you're surrounded by troops. You pick one part of that circle of, of the people that are surrounding you and then you attack and you break through. It, it sounds like what it is. It's a breakout. Everybody knew that they needed to break out. They're like, hey, we're surrounded. We need fuel. We need water. We need food. We don't have any of that. We need to break out. And so everyone was kind of prepared to do that back to the book our army still deposed of about 130 combat ready tanks and about the same number of armored scout cars and other armored vehicles in other words we still had a powerful motorized units available everywhere people were waiting for the relieving signal for the breakout with fluttering hearts we followed the preparations that were taking place mainly in the western sector of the army in anticipation of the expected operation the order had been given to destroy all superfluous materiel everywhere damaged guns tanks and trucks useless communication and engineering equipment huge amounts of clothing files and paper even food were being consigned to flames so they all think that they're going to break out hmm. They're assuming, look, we're gonna break out. This is the only solution right now. We're surrounded. We need to attack one area and get out of here. So they start going, okay, before we leave, we're gonna burn this fuel, we're gonna burn this food, we're not gonna leave anything for the Russians. Back to the book, according to the decision by Army Command, the retreat from Stalingrad was to begin on 26 November. We did not entertain the slightest doubt that the supreme command must be convinced of its necessity. We counted firmly on its being carried out. I will never forget how stunned we all were. The agitation, yes, the petrifying horror that befell us, especially among the higher ranks of our staff, when on 24 November the message came in from Army that Hitler had forbidden the planned breakout and finally ordered the Stalingrad Army to temporarily take up a position of all-around defense. So, Hitler says, no, you're not leaving. Oh, you're surrounded? By the way, they're surrounded by a force of about a million Russian soldiers. But, but, but it's more than that because they're surrounded by the country of Russia. Mm. Back to the book. The fatal radio message from the distant Fuhrer headquarters had come like a stroke of lightning. Forbidding the planned withdrawal of our northern front, the detachment of our forces from Stalingrad, and thereby the hope for the breakout. This decision by the Supreme Command was just as heavy a blow for the staff at the Army as it was for us. We were unable to satisfy ourselves as to why all the reports, admonitions, and requests for our responsible, of our responsible higher staffs, who were best able to judge the events and all the dangers they entailed, had not been successful. So, 
this is something that Patton said. The commander on the ground is always right. Meaning if you're sitting in an ivory tower somewhere, there's a guy on the ground, he's right and you're wrong. Hmm. He's on the ground, he knows what's happening. Now, could we come up with some exceptions to this? Absolutely, you have better intelligence of what's happening, you maybe know some, you maybe have overhead coverage or you get you get air reports or you have, in these days you have satellites looking at things. So yeah, there's situations where you might know a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But the default thought process should be the guy on the ground is, is has a better situational awareness than I do, I'm gonna go with their call. And here's Hitler saying no. Now, General Paulus, who's the commander of all the, all the German soldiers, General Paulus, back to the book, General Paulus addressed himself directly to Hitler with a very serious and responsible evaluation of the situation. In this momentous radio message, he had adamantly stressed that the fact that all his senior commanding generals shared the conviction that because it would be impossible to adequately supply the army in time, it would shortly be destroyed unless a concentration of all available forces were to succeed in decisively beating the enemy attacking from the west and the south. So it's not just... One general that's saying this. Every but every there's uh, there's two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand Germans there. There's a lot of senior military people. All of them are saying we need to leave. Hitler says no. Why? Because Hitler's just that. Like no, you got you guys don't leave because we're we're Germans. We fight till the death. It's, kind. it's arrogance. Yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely partially arrogance that he thinks no will hold out. It will still just win because we'll we're, we're we'll us. Just, yeah, we'll just we'll just hold it out. And I think he's being stubborn. Uh, and yeah, he's, yes, the kind where like he he made a call kind of yeah, thing. He made a call, and then they're like, "Hey, we, this call's no good. We're gonna do this." He's like, "No, no, no, no I made the call. Absolutely, I made the call. yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. what's going on. Ego. I mean, obviously Hitler has a." a probably one of the biggest egos of any human being ever and here you see it yeah sure in full effect even though he had left no doubt that in his view the decision promising salvation lay in an immediate breakout in the end he too this is talking about paulus in the end he too submitted and obeyed for him an order was an order in spite of everything all that remained to us was to hope for a rescue operation from the outside. I will say this, actually. You know, there's some books, the parts of this book that I'm not going to cover because we just don't have time. Well, there's that guy that gave that speech, Goring, in the beginning. He had also told Hitler, hey, don't worry. We can resupply. He was the, before taking over all the German military forces, he was in charge of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. And he said, look, we can resupply these guys. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. And, and I th- he probably said that at a time when it didn't look like they were going to get completely surrounded. You know, oh, yeah, we'll resupply them. Don't worry about them. Mm. And we'll get into some of the numbers on what they said they could do. But that's another reason why Hitler. Hitler thought, oh, we can resupply them. He also had people on the ground. He's surrounded by yes men. Gotcha. Yeah. So no one wants to disagree with the boss man, in this case, Adolf Hitler, sure. by saying, so when he says, look, can't we resupply them? Yes, yes, we can resupply him from the air. Mm-hmm. And also, he was saying, hey, can't someone, instead of them breaking out and going toward, back towards Germany, why don't we have some German troops go towards them and break into them? Mm-hmm. That way we can open up some supply lines. So what did he get told when he, when he offered that solution? He got told, yes, we can do it. Mm-hmm. Yes, we can do it. So he's surrounded by yes men. And you know how he ended up surrounded by yes men? His ego. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want. I don't like to be told. Oh, you're gonna tell me no? You're fired. Yeah, yeah. Get someone in here that's gonna tell me that they can do what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And then that person's gonna get promoted, mm-hmm. and then you get surrounded by people that want to get promoted. <laughs> Check. Proceeding on. There was one general that really made it made a significant effort. Here we go back to the book. Initially. General von Seidlitz was dumbfounded. Stunned, he accepted the order, but in his heart he rejected it, particularly since he was painfully aware that his own hands were tied. Not until the following day, 25 November 1942, did General von Seidlitz react to Hitler's orders, and his reaction was as much filled with a sense of responsibility as it was temperamental. Addressed to the Army Command, it took the form of a detailed evaluation of the situation that Corps Commander had had his Chief of Staff prepare. It surmised once again all the arguments against the Stalingrad Army digging in and urged the breaking out of the ring immediately. So what's cool about this book, they actually have this actual document that this guy wrote. Have you, you ever heard me talk on the podcast about getting all your ducks in a row? And like, hey, if my boss tells me no, cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get all the information. I'm gonna come back, and I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna make a, a, a bulletproof argument yeah, yeah. that my boss is going to agree with because you can't. My, my, my argument's gonna be bulletproof yeah. because I'm right. And if I wasn't right, then I wouldn't, pres- I wouldn't go this far, yeah. right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put my, my reputation on the line, arguing something that I don't truly believe is right. You know, I'll, I'll say, okay, well, you know what, he could be right. So you know what? I'm going to try and execute it to my best of my ability. Yeah, yeah. In this case, Seidlitz is like, no, it's not no, and and he says, okay, I'm going to form, I'm going to put together this thing. They have the document inside this book. I, I would read it, but it's long. Mm. It's it's so detailed that it would take too much time. Mm. But it lays out every little detail of why they need to break out, and not in an emotional. That's what's beautiful about it. Not in an emotional way. Mm. How maybe I just need to check myself because maybe more emotion was needed, but. Generally, if you come across as really emotional, Hitler would think, oh, you, well, a boss would think, oh, you're just emotional about this echo. Yeah, you're just yeah. emotional, buddy. You yeah. just need to calm down. Yeah, yeah it's calm Carry down. out the orders. So he didn't, he, he played the role or he, he used the strategy of just calm. This is what's going on. This is what needs to change. Or this is what we need to do. And if we don't, it's going to be catastrophic. Mm. Back to the book. In the emergency situation, Intensified by the OKH and OKH's Oberkommando des Eiders, which is the supreme high command of the German army. General von Seidlitz demanded from the commander-in-chief of the army that he act immediately against orders, in other words, against Hitler. So, so Seidlitz, when Seidlitz got told no, he's like, no, listen, we need to do it anyways. Mm. That's how passionate. So now he's starting to get a little bit emotional and passionate. He declared it to be an imperative duty to the army and to the German people to obey the dictates of conscience and to seize the freedom of action that had been forbidden in order to prevent threatening catastrophe. The memo was passed on by army command, but had no effect whatsoever. And so they had to suffer the additional pain that in the final analysis they could but give in and fulfill the bitter soldierly duty to obey against their own better insight. Now, I will tell you that, as Napoleon said, if you execute a plan that you know is wrong, you are culpable for executing it. And these guys, they would not stand up against Hitler. 
back to the book, we were all deeply disturbed and full of despair and in our hearts even outraged. What was being demanded of us not only contradicted all military experience, it went against every soldierly feeling and robbed of us any hope of any hope of being able to save ourselves by breaking out under our own power. In the last week of November, when the formations that had been heavily damaged during the initial retreat were hastily and with great difficulty establishing themselves on a new main line of resistance, Army issued a grave order of the day. I can still remember the exact wording. It started, Sixth Army has been surrounded. This is not your fault. As always, you have fought bravely and tenaciously up to the moment the enemy had you by the neck. It went on to point out that the hard fighting, suffering, and deprivations that would still be demanded of the troops and which they would have to endure for a time in hunger and frost, trusting in the help from outside that had been so definitely promised. So Hitler did say, hey, I'm going to send help from the outside. Don't worry about it. You stay put. Finally, mention was made of the relief operation to which Hitler had personally committed himself. Psychologically clever and calculating, the appeal ended with the encouraging words, promising consolation and salvation. Hold on, the Fuhrer will get you out. This final sentence appealing so strongly to emotion, which injected a new tone into the previously factual and sober language of military orders, gave rise to discussions among our staff. It made me realize, on top of all that had already happened, how great the sacrifice was going to be that would be demanded of the troops. By the way, these guys traveled there and had a really hard time of it. They know how hard it was for them to get there. And now they're being told that the people that are going to the, the way that they're going to get saved is by someone else coming behind them mm. to help them going through the same hardships that they barely got there. Mm. So their, their, their outlook isn't good yeah, on the situation. Doubtful. Yeah, they're doubtful. Back to the book. A large number of the soldiers who had been in constant exhaustion, ex- in constant and exhausting action in the front line for two years without leave, without having been home to see their loved ones. So, a lot of these guys, so they had actually survived a winter early on. Mm. They'd survived a winter as they pushed into German, or as they put it, pushed into Russia, and now they're waiting for another one. But these soldiers had been fighting for two straight years. Hard fighting. Back to the book, naturally the troops were not in a position to appreciate the full extent of the suffering and deprivations they were about to face. They knew nothing of the difficult problems of the overall supply situation. So again, this guy is working at the headquarters, meaning he's you know, with the commanders and the leadership. Mm. So he's tracking all the logistics of the situation. The frontline soldier doesn't know. The frontline soldier expects, hey, they're going to bring me bullets. They're going to bring me food. Mm. He realizes, because he sees what's actually happening, that, that that's going to be a real problem. <laughs> they had no inkling of the countless worries that lay so heavily and depressingly on the higher staffs. Nor, at first, were they aware that, that at one stroke, the encirclement had made it impossible to complete preparations for winter positions out there in the supply depots of the army lay tens of thousands of fur coats warm stockings protective headgear and other items of winter clothing which could now no longer reach the encircled forces for the most part the men remained completely inadequately supplied with winter gear and exposed to the murderous frost 
So they had thousands and thousands of warm weather gear, or I should say cold weather gear, and now they're gonna get nothing. They're cut off. Back to the book. We calculated that our own army, whose total strength before the encirclement had been about 330,000 men, now numbered about 280,000. So they're already short 50,000 killed. We, the staff, the officers in the staff departments, also pinned our hopes on the relief operation which was being prepared. No one even considered that Hitler would be ready to abandon the outstandingly proven Sixth Army on the Volga and throw it to the wolves. So these guys are. Even I said that. Even though I said they weren't hopeful, mm. they're also thinking there's no way that Hitler is going to leave three hundred thousand soldiers out yeah. here. There's no way. Yeah. Back to the book. He was bound to find ways and means to rectify the devilish situation. There were even starry-eyed dreamers, not however among the older and more experienced, who maintained that the Führer would not only get us out, but had probably already conceived a plan to turn our apparent defeat into a glorious triumph by encircling all the enemy's armies that are surrounding us. None of these dreamers and believers in miracles who kept, their, who kept surfacing here and there until the very end had a clear idea of what was implied by the fact that German soldiers were simultaneously fighting on the North Cape and the Bay of Biscay, in the front of Leningrad and Vierzma, on in the Caucasus, in Crete, and in North Africa. So again, this guy's fighting fronts all over the place. And the, and the staff officers, the leadership knew how thinly spread the German army was. The frontline troops didn't, you know, they didn't make sense of that. During the weeks of December, the fighting strength of the army was deteriorating at a horrendous pace. The blame for this lay mainly in the, in the inadequate airlift. Here, a catastrophic picture was slowly emerging. In order to be able to maintain its ability to live and fight, our army had initially requested 750 tons of supplies per day, later reducing this to 500 tons per day. The JU-52 cargo aircraft had about a two-ton load. The the HE-111 fighter bomber had a, held about 1.5 tons. So this is gonna require like 2,000 aircraft to be able to make this happen. What do they end up with? Back to the book, they only brought in 80 to 120 tons of the required supplies. In other words, not more than one-fifth of the amount needed. Purely and simply, this meant a daily deficit of 10,000 kilograms of bread and a fatal undersupply of desperately needed fuel and ammunition. So we're getting a one-fifth of what they need. Now, we have to be careful because that's a little statistic that we're throwing out there, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, we're getting one-fifth of what we need. But now think of a human being and what you need as a human being, just food, mm. and you cut that down to one-fifth of what you need. You know, you need 2,500 calories a day, you're gonna get 500. Mm. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. You need, and, and by the way, you're fighting, and you're gonna, you're being attacked. So you need 1,000 bullets a day, right? You need 1,000 bullets a day. You're getting 120 bullets. It's, it's there, things are not looking good. Back to the book. The sun set soon after lunch, and by 1,400 to 1,500 hours, it was already dark. So this is now we're talking Russian winter. By 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's dark. 
And every day, this too reminded us to depressingly here in the desolation of the snow br- snowbound step of the enormous distance that separated us from home. Were we not all, the living and the dead, long buried in a gigantic mass grave? Thoughts like this occasionally befell me when I returned from various sectors of the front, where in my role as liaison officer, I had been sent on specific assignments to gather urgently needed information. There, on the heights above the, the infamous Roshaka Valley, the men of our divisions lay in desperate battle demanding bloody sacrifice. There, in the trenches and foxholes in the snow, the soldiers were dying of exhaustion and cold. Because their steadily shrinking rations of bread and other food issued, food issued were no longer sufficient to provide the physical stamina needed to combat frost and sickness. So they're starving to death. They're starving to death and they're freezing to death and they're, they're being attacked and killed by the Russians. With no ammo. With no ammo. One day in the second week of December, the staffs first heard the news that the army group Don under Field Marshal Van Mainstein, Von Mainstein had begun the long hope relief for the long hope for relief operation soon the good news had also reached the troops the words gave new impetus everywhere and particularly on the hard-pressed western perimeter of the pocket spread like lightning manstein is coming the already dying hopes burst forth anew new courage happy expectations a new spirit of initiative began to blossom the sufferings and sacrifices to date had not been in vain after all salvation was now beckoning what the Fuhrer had promised, he was bound to deliver. So they get word. Manstein's coming. This is, this is good. If everything went well, they thought, the hour of all relief could just coincide with Christmas. The motorized groups and strong tank units being led by Colonel General Hoff, elements of which had been brought in from France in great haste, had begun their relief offensive. Hoff's spearhead tanks were only 50 kilometers away. Hold on, we're coming, said one of the encouraging radio messages which spread like wildfire amongst the western edge of the pocket. So they're in radio communication, 50 kilometers. Hmm. And... This well-respected leader, Hoff, he's on the way and he tells him, hold on, we're coming. Do you ever, that is, isn't that like a jinx right there? You know what I mean? Like, do you ever celebrate something? Yeah, celebrate even, even inside your head, you celebrate something a little bit before you should. Yeah. Don't ever do that. Am I superstitious because I believe that way? If you think that that's how it truly works, mm, but. I think I'm. I th- I think it's superstitious, but I also think there's some psychology behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I think so okay. too. Yeah, yeah. Where especially if you realize, if you just realize, oh, I just celebrated early right there. So yeah. it's kind of it makes you uneasy or something like, like that. I feel like that guy, that guy got a certain level of satisfaction just by saying, like, "Don't worry, we're coming." Like he had this moment of glory. That's glorious. That's a glorious thing yeah. to be able to say. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, we're coming. Yeah, yeah. It's a glorious thing to be able to say. And he took that. He, he took the easy money right there, easy psychologically. 
mm. instead of being like, hey, we're not there yet. We need to be ready. Right, we need right. to fight harder. We need to go fast. Don't worry about where we are. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, finish strong, right? Yeah. Kind of thing. It's like the guy who's running the touchdown, right? Mm-hmm. He's running, he's, he hits the 30 yard line, right? The 25, he puts the hand up. Who was that? There's like a classic. Yeah, that, that and the guy creeps up behind him. Boom. You know what? This guy was named Leon Lett. He played for the, I want to say, Dallas Cowboys. He was like a, like a deep, deep. Around what year? Uh, I want to say 90s, maybe. Can, how many other Dallas Cowboy players can you? Remember the name of from the nineties? Um, Can you remember a lot of them? Like a handful. Just let like the quarter. Leon. Well, remember him? He's he's infamous. That's why oh, for this. Dude, I mean, poor nice. guy. You know, he he's a defensive like lineman or something. Recovers a yeah. fumble, runs it in for the touchdown, and he's he's doing he's not even doing, putting it above his head. He's putting yeah. it on the side, kind of like celebrating. And I think they stripped him and recovered it. I think, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, yeah, it was bad. Psychologically. You can't stop. You, you gotta can't finish take strong. The easy money. You gotta finish. Sprint through the finish line, or that like races like a hundred meter dash. You know the guys like, or the two hundred meter, yeah. and he's like, yeah, I won it. Then the mm-hmm. guy, you know, the, guy, the the real hungry guy gets it. You know, right at the end. So that's Hoth. Hoth takes the easy money. Dang, can't be doing it, Hoth. Back to the book. In the sure knowledge that before us was the last chance for our salvation, we feverishly awaited the decisive hour with a feeling of confidence. The orders we expected could not be delayed much longer. But all too soon, our hopes were to be bitterly disappointed. Alarming messages began to came in. Rapidly attacking Russian tank forces were embroiling the relieving army in heavy fighting, were slowing the advance, and finally leading in connection with the Russian offensive group operations west of the Don to a serious crisis for the entire army group. One of the attacks hit Colonel General Hoth, who was hastening towards us. In fearful tension and delay, mounting agitation, we read the messages we were receiving from the far distant German air reconnaissance and radio surveillance units. Soon these brought news of disaster. The relief operation had begun to run down. Hoth's forces, in turn threatened with being surrounded, were finally forced to retreat. The front fell back hundreds of kilometers, and the encircled Stalingrad army on the Volga was left to its fate. Only much later was I to learn of tragic details of the events and circumstances that had sealed the fate of the encircled army at this point. I did not know then that Hitler was still in no way prepared to give up Stalingrad and the Volga. That for the second time and after the dramatic conflicts and the conflicts that he's talking about is between him, between Hitler and the people, his advisors, he had explicitly forbidden the breakout of the Sixth Army against the will of his chief of staff and in opposition to the demands of the army group Don. So Hitler leaves them, abandons them. Back to the book, among the circle of our closer comrades, we no longer entertained any illusions about the bleakness of our situation. The German front had withdrawn a great distance away, and for the time being, there would be no new thought or new, no thought of a new relief operation. Would the German front be able to hold out for several more weeks? It was hardly to be expected. Hunger frost and sickness were cutting terribly into its waning strength and death was reaping an uncanny harvest and not only on the fire spewing iron ring around the pocket 
and even the conditions for a great saving breakout operation scarcely existed any longer. In such an event, the army would only be able to remain mobile for a few kilometers because of the lack of fuel. And if Stalingrad were to be given up, what then would happen to the growing army of wounded, sick, and exhausted men? Did the OKH intend to give up the Volga at all? The measures ordered so far seemed to point the opposite way. Once again, I was often forced to recall Hitler's fanatical words about the German soldier on the Volga, about Stalingrad, and each time an icy unease crept through my bones. Maybe, yes maybe, we were supposed to hold on to the bitter end, to stay put and fight to the last bullet. On the dark horizon, the outlines of a terrible disaster began to emerge. Christmas Eve approached. All the visible and invisible wounds which the cruel events had caused burned even more painfully on this night. The atmosphere was depressed. Memories of former Christmas celebrations with their blissful shimmer only dimly illuminated our harsh reality as from a world long gone. The well-loved Christmas carols sounded in low, melancholy sadness. So, hope is pretty much vanquished at this point. Not completely, because he's still in. May, he's still saying maybe, maybe they're just going to leave us here and fight to the last man, which is a crazy thought. Because I'm going to say this number again: two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand soldiers. Mm. This isn't like, hey, you've got 18 guys fight to the last man. Right. It's the Alamo, right? Yeah. This isn't that. This, because that, that might have, you know, that, that's not going to have a strategic impact on the situation. You lose 300,000 combat veterans, which, which you know, hard, combat hardened veterans. This is going to have a strategic implication. Mm. I mean, of course, every soldier that dies is, is a, epic event in that soldier's life obviously in their family and everything else but when you start talking about leaving 300,000 people to die for nothing it's it's he still can't quite get that he's still not quite there he sees it on the horizon he's not quite there though back to the book the new year had arrived Jangling frost lay over Stalingrad, over the Stalingrad pocket and breathed its icy, deadly breath. The sharp wind blew through the joints of doors and windows and in the bunkers, and from the floors the cold crept up to one's knees. The daily casualty reports from our divisions that increasingly reported losses other than by enemy action represented a shattering balance on the death sheet. So what he's saying there is like, yeah, people are dying from combat. But even more people are dying just from cold and starvation. Again, the Russians furiously attacked several sectors of our perimeter. What did we have left to oppose these powerful Russian elite troops who were protected from the frost and had a full stomach, not to mention their numerous tanks, guns, rocket launchers, and mortars? Only small numbers of heavy weapons with insufficient, strictly rationed ammunition. It's all we had. Only emaciated men exhausted by hunger, among whom the fighting, the cold, and spreading diseases were taking a daily frightening toll. 
How much longer could the perimeter withstand the pressure? It did not escape our attention that the Russians appeared to be concentrating in front of our sector in preparation for a major blow. The last sad possibility grew even clearer on the dark horizon, the fate of our destruction by a shattering offensive breaking over our heads. So again, it's interesting that this guy's, well, two things I should point out. Number one, it's interesting that this guy's perspective because he's in the staff and so he sees more of what's happening from the general officers. Mm. But let's also make note that he's not on the front lines. And he's so he has it relatively good, meaning he's protected by the by the rush from the Russians by right. some distance. I mean, he's still getting mortared, et cetera, still getting artillery, but he's not he's not eye to eye with the Russians like the mm. guys like the soldiers on the front lines that are sitting in a, a little slit trench in the ground in the tundra. Mm. One of the things that he sees is a, is a meeting. Here we go back to the book. An important meeting of the general staff took place at our core which the commander-in-chief of the army, General Paulus, attended with his chief of staff. The serious, reserved expression of the tall figure with the head of a scientist reflected something of a burden of responsibility that pressed down tormentingly on the shoulders of this man. It was the last time I was to see our army commander in the pocket. As far as I can remember, he never visited our corps again. I soon learned of the outcome of the meeting and the grave words of our general staff officers left no doubt about the consequences of the orders that had been issued in the meantime. They dealt with the mobilization of the last reserves of the 6th Army. The encircled forces were to hold on and fight to the last. For this purpose, the formation of fortress battalions was to be prepared and executed as quickly as possible. All remaining reserves of able-bodied men were to be collected and used as infantry. Members of the Luftwaffe ground personnel and anti-aircraft troops, gunners who no longer had guns, panzer grenadiers, engineers, truck drivers, clerical staffs, rear echelon, and supply personnel were once again to be ruthlessly combed out. The order amounted to the virtual dissolution of the rear echelon services and clearly demonstrated that the immobilized army was doomed to stay put and fight to the last man and the last bullet. So there you go. Everyone's going to fight. Cooks, supply people, you're all going to become infantrymen now. And this clearly indicates to, to uh, Weeder that that means they're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're going to stay there and they're going to fight to the last man. Back to the book. We felt that we had already been written off by the higher-ups. And all that remained for us was to perform a heroic, if futile gesture to ensure the fulfillment of a, the historic mission and he's got quotes around that, of the army of Stalingrad on the Volga. The troops were again given the cheering radio message which the Fuhrer and Supreme Warlord had sent at the turn of the year. Sixth Army has my promise that everything is being done to get it out. But we now viewed this not just with doubt, but as downright deception. So they don't believe Hitler anymore. Mm-hmm. <sighs> They used to just doubt him. Now, now they think he's dis- yeah, deceiving yeah. him. And again, this is not this is no small group of people. Yeah. Back to the book. The bread ration was reduced to fifty grams per day. Ringing cold, gnawing hunger, creeping illness, enemy fire, combined in an indissoluble offensive pact. Dysentery and typhoid fever had appeared as uncanny guests and the plague of lice increased from day to day. 
Death danced his murderous rondo back and forth throughout the pocket. His headquarters were the numerous places of suffering despair, the dressing stations and field hospitals that filled to overflowing alarmingly, but he also felt at home on the lines day and night, so death is everywhere. And isn't it weird, you know, you think like, just being sick, you were telling me you were sick a couple days ago. Common cold, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and you think about what being sick does to you. And now this is you're being sick and it doesn't matter like there's no mercy. Yeah, you're you're, there's no mercy Back to the book during back to the book during 50 days that pocket battle lasted so far He and he's talking about death. He had already cleaned out horribly among the men of the army About one-third of its manpower was gone of the more than 300,000 men who were present at the time of the Russian breakthrough about 200,000 were probably still alive And how many of these enduring and hoping, fighting and suffering human beings had death not already marked on his own? News that we could no longer count on any relief before spring was really shattering. There was nothing more to be done save to hang on and endure the horror. Now, we get a little opportunity here. Here we go. There was a surrender proposal sent to our encircled army by the Soviet Supreme Command. The document was addressed to Paulus, who had been promoted to Colonel General, and to all the officers and men of the German forces fighting at Stalingrad. It was signed by Colonel General of the Artillery, Voronov, and by the Commander-in-Chief of the Forces of the Don Front, Lieutenant General Rokosvinsky who had now obviously been put in sole charge of all the forces surrounding us. The proposal began with a short, factual, and largely correct evaluation of our situation. In particular, it stressed the catastrophic state of supply of our troops who were suffering from hunger, cold and sickness, lack of winter clothing, and terribly insanitary conditions. Realistic possibilities of breaking the encircling ring no longer existed. Any further resistance in such a hopeless situation had to be senseless. Therefore, in order to avoid further unnecessary shedding of blood, the Red Army was proposing a number of terms. The document ended with a reference directed to the Commander-in-Chief of Stalingrad Army, pointing out that in the event of refusal, the forces of the Red Army and Air Force would be obliged to destroy the pocket for which he, Colonel General Paulus, would bear the responsibility. You still got 200,000 people and you get an offer. You get 24 hours to respond. You basically surrender everybody. Yeah, everybody's going to surrender. Yeah. And and they weren't sure how they were going to get treated. Mm. I mean, they were fairly confident it wasn't going to be treated good. Mm. Uh, I don't know though, man. All the dysentery that's not treated very good either. That's not treating you very good at all. Back to the book. We soon received various orders, directives, and messages whose burden was that the surrender was out of the question. The commander-in-chief had passed the Russian ultimatum onto the Fuhrer headquarters and asked for freedom of action for all eventualities. In immediate reply, Hitler had personally forbidden surrender. And Paulus had rejected in writing the proposal of the Soviet command. 
the troops were not informed not to be informed in detail but from now on they were ordered to fire without warning on flags of truth of truce appearing near the front lines this instruction from army which we received by radio was especially revealing as to the intentions of leadership in our staff it was received with rejection and objection because it was a clear breach of international law so they don't get told like hey we're not surrendering what they get told is if you see anyone with flags of truce shoot them immediately which is basically saying we're not surrendering Back to the book, I was reminded again of Hitler's high-sounding words about the invincibility of the German soldier for whom nothing must be seen to be impossible. The very thought of capitulation must be an irreconcilable, must be irreconcilable with the prestige of the supreme warlord. He puts that in quotes every time. I, I don't call it out every time, but he does. Mm. He's sort of mocking Hitler with mm. that. In his speech in Munich shortly before our encirclement, he had... Had he not solemnly sworn, you may rest assured, I repeat this with full responsibility before God and history, that we shall never again leave Stalingrad, never again. For life or death, we were committed to the cheerless dawn step. Here, our fate must come full turn. The most terrible weeks were still before us, and during those icy days in January, the fearful premonition of what was to come descended upon us like a lead weight. On the morning of 10 January 1943, exactly 24 hours after the ultimatum had expired, the Russian began the destruction of the pocket with a hellish artillery barrage. It was the answer to the rejection of the surrender proposal. Up uh, up front among the staffs on the line, I again entered the atmosphere of tension, excitement, nervousness, and despair. The situation was partially unclear and confused. The, cat- the catastrophe did indeed appear to be unavoidable. Into this helpless situation, orders from army came in time and time again. Defend, hold, clear up the situation, fight to the last bullet from their desks 2,000 kilometers away. And he puts in parentheses an exclamation point. The OKH, together with the constantly interfering Fuhrer headquarters, forbade any independent withdrawal from endangered, from endangered sectors of the perimeter. And Army, which had to meticulously justify itself for any change in the front line caused by the pressure of circumstances, obeyed. So just classic, it's micromanagement, not decentralized command. They're even saying, look, if, you're, if, you're, if your perimeter is gonna collapse, don't fall back, just die. <laughs> Which is ridiculous, because it doesn't help the situation. Because yeah. now there's a hole, mm-hmm. and now more, more enemy are gonna come through the hole, and we're gonna have people behind us. Yeah, It's like full on, kind of what you were talking about, last week maybe the week before last week it's like do it because i said so kind of thing yeah. like there's no reason you guys gonna die there's no reason to do it no strategic reason no tactical reason obviously let's do it because i said so yeah. die whatever yeah the army corps divisions and regiments obeyed often with bitter criticism with open or hidden reservations flaring up or knuckling under but they obeyed and the suffering and dying of troops in the trenches and foxholes in the icy steppe obeyed, giving their all in the natural fulfillment of their duty or in apathy and silent despair. The higher leadership did not stint with recognition, 
Promotions, decorations, and medals rain down en masse on the fighting, suffering, doomed men. But what purpose did this huge, monstrous commitment and dedication of human beings serve in the face of the increasingly military helplessness and the daily worsening human plight? I was becoming more and more depressed by the torturing question of the why of this sacrifice of most precious blood, this pitiless dying. Was it not only for the sake of of a prestige that a military supreme command thousands of kilometers removed mercilessly wished to maintain and for whom the price in many thousands of human lives did not appear to be too high? This question haunted me and would not leave me until the final sorrowful ending. So he's asking why. They start to collapse from the perimeter of the pocket in towards the city of Stalingrad because they were kind of pushed out around it, surrounding it, and now they're starting to fall back to it where they at least have some coverage. Back to the book, the withdrawal of the troops finally turned into a full-fledged flight into which further formations and combat groups of various divisions were drawn. Whole units ceased to exist in this confusion. In the sector of our neighbor to our left, this fate also put an end to a whole division that had long been under our command and in the end had burned out like a slag heap. I saw its distraught general, now a commander without troops, wandering around in a bunker, desperately seeking a new assignment. So he just lost 20,000 men. He's walking around saying, what am I supposed to do now? Back to the book. And this desperate withdrawal was being carried out in icy cold weather and pitiless snowstorms at 30 degrees centigrade below zero. That's negative 22. At 30 degrees below zero, the remnant of the regiments that had shrunk to combat groups and the suffering hordes of their shat- of other shattered units moved over the empty white steps, staggering crowds, dragging, dragging crowds of lost, lightly wounded and frostbitten soldiers with them. How many of those that so far had been spared enemy fire succumbed there to exhaustion and overexertion, to the strains of hunger and to the cold? Innumerable men fell by the wayside and were soon mercifully covered over by the snow. And this was no longer an authorized withdrawal. The recoil of the front was now taking place despite standing orders to hold and maintain position at all costs and despite the line of resistance laid down by the OKH. So they finally did break. Mm. They finally said, you know what? survival this is about survival and we're not staying here anymore we're gonna try and get back fall back the cycle the psychological ability of the troops to resist had now also been eroded there could no longer be any doubt about our fate after the enemy had begun his decisive attack bent on destruction and our dissolution was in full progress, it was too late for a last departure attempt to break out to the west. 
Help from outside could no longer be considered. More devastating even than the enemy's weapons were hunger, exhaustion, cold, and illness of all kinds among the soldiers who had not been adequately fed for so many long weeks. With the advent of the indescribable strains of daily retreats, the situation had deteriorated catastrophically. We were lacking in food, weapons, rest, warmth, hope. In short, we were lacking in all the vital conditions for fighting. Since the long rejection of the surrender proposal, the troops had again survived a long, terrible week of tenacious defensive fighting, retreat, and flight, thereby tying down superior enemy forces in their area. Now, after the loss of our life support base, Potomac Airfield on January 16th, the time really seemed to have come to stop fighting. The airlift temporarily ceased altogether. No more food and ammunition came in. The wounded and sick could no longer be flown out. And <clears throat> so that's where they're getting their supplies into, Potomac Airfield. And that's actually where this guy was for a large chunk of this battle. It's now gone. So now they, even, you know, before they were, they were only getting one-fifth of what they needed. Well, now they're getting zero. Dang. By now, every day that the fighting was prolonged was costing thousands of human lives. There was no more time to be lost, and we waited for something to happen. Like me, innumerable comrades and brothers in fate probably clung to the same secret hope, but nothing happened, and tragedy took its course. The Russians, by using their stormtroops during the initial days of the offensive, it would probably have been very easy for them to make a further effort and liquidate the pocket relatively quickly. But they no longer needed to make such a highly costly attempt. Time was on their side. By bearing down on our tenacious defense with a crushing attack, our enemy had won its penetration into the pocket. Now he was no longer in a hurry and no longer appeared to consider his victim to be very dangerous. The battle that had begun in the meantime was merely a question of finishing off a wounded game already marked for death. For some time already, the Russians had dictated the course of events. The date of our final end depended on their will alone. The stations of the cross of an army of 200,000 soldiers, particularly because of the slow, helpless death of such a vast number of human beings, made anything seen before, with the exception of Verdun, pale by comparison. A part of the entire German nation was sentenced to death here, and by this, its vital substance was dangerously under attack. The moral effect of these events touched the whole nation. In the midst of the general destruction of the army, there were thousands of individual tragedies whose localities of horror were the numerous collection points for the sick and wounded. Whole convoys of mostly open trucks overloaded with their pitiable freight of freezing, wounded, groaning, sick, and dying moved deeper into the pocket. From the second half of January until the bitter end, the harsh suffering of the fighting soldiers continued by day and night. After eight evil weeks of indescribable torture and deprivations, they were now plunged into a veritable hell of hopelessness and destruction. 
time and again it was fight resist hold to the end then disengage withdraw turn back and dig in again for defense in the snow and stonily hard frozen earth time and again there were heavy losses panic and flight and the never-ending useless struggle struggle against hunger and cold among the staffs there was an unending tension perplexity and despair and feverish activity leadership was still to be seen from the higher commands came continual orders directives questions admonitions threats criticism opposition and misgivings were not lacking at the lower levels but for the time being the mechanisms of command still function so despite all this and even though they're having this this hasty withdrawal that's going against orders there's still our direction coming out there's still people being disciplined in the midst of the general suffering and dying we helplessly watch the catastrophe and of destruction approaching us mercilessly and inexorably the terrible human tragedy that was nearing its climax was finally commented, commented upon by the war news broadcast at home in the pretty and spirited words, it, quote, in Stalingrad, Sixth Army is attaching immortal honor to its banners by its heroic and self-sacrificing battle against crushing odds. Many of my comrades had mentally written themselves off. Intentions to commit suicide were voiced with increasing frequency. Others had given their valuables and wedding rings to to the wounded being flown out. I myself had been had so far been at pains to prepare my relatives for the catastrophe by means of sparse hints. Now I felt the need to send home open word of farewell and gratitude. The letter was hard to write. In my ears once more rang rang the last goodbye my wife had imploringly and beseechingly called down the telephone line to Kiev on a spring evening of last year before the seemingly endless space of Russian planes had swallowed me up. Now all would soon be over. When I sealed the letter, I was gripped by especially deep despair. I felt as though I were suddenly looking into an abyss of suffering and hopelessness towards which our whole nation was reeling, as if the events in Stalingrad were a preview of an immeasurable disaster that was to break upon Germany. The general of this division division had a nervous breakdown and was no longer fit for command. His hopes of being flown out with the badly wounded and sick had not been fulfilled. He now had to share the fate of his soldiers to the bitter end. This general, who a short time before was a commander of a division, had carried the responsibility for many thousands of men, was once more a mere human being trembling for his life. And did his questions not reveal the same fear that secretly tormented all of us? We made one another realize that the impending military catastrophe was also a political catastrophe, the result of presumptuous beliefs and actions that had long shaken the healthy foundations of our intellectual, cultural, and national life had the power that we served as citizens and soldiers bent its knee before the law that was rooted in the code of ethics, or rather, 
had not a new gospel of violence been proclaimed and introduced that in a fatal reversal of all values had ceased to differentiate between right and wrong. So these guys are realizing what's coming around. What's coming around? He's realizing that the path that they went down as a country was wrong. Back to the book. By means of destructive battle against the universal educational and cultural powers of classic antiquity, humanism, and Christianity, an anti-intellectual political religion of power had successively extracted the German people from the best of the commonly held European body of human thought and thereby also out of any commitment to the objective concepts of truth, compassion, and justice. Is that is that his conclusion like during this these mm-hmm. events or Yes, during these events mm. he's realizing what what's happening. Yeah. Is that they were wrong and they went I mean the thing that's crazy about Nazi Germany is how fast that transition took place mm. it's like we're talking 10 years what Go, the rise uh, of the Nazis the rise of the Nazis or their 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 influence in that yeah the rise of the Nazis yeah. straight up 1933 they started now 1943 so we're 10 years and you have a completely different viewpoint of the world yeah that's crazy I mean I wonder how starts, much they're going against See what like they're going against the traditional values They're going against hey, you know, they're going against the Christian values. They're going against the cultural values They're going against the national values. Yeah, they're going against them. Yeah And it's I wonder how much of it is uh, you know, like the, the soldiers and the even the people in the Nazi party I mm-hmm. wonder how much of it is like denial, you know, you know where it's a you know how like you're signed on to like some leader you mean during the dur- in the time being yeah, or, yeah. or are you saying right now how much of this denial? No, right no, 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 no oh, during 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 the, oh, the yeah, rise, sure. you know, well, it's if like, you remember rape and Nanking, you remember that yeah, there was yeah, one of the yeah. nicest guys one of the mm-hmm. guys who made the biggest sacrifice was a was a straight-up actual Nazi yeah, and he yeah. made massive sacrifice and took huge risks to save as many people as he could. Uh-huh. By the way, not white people, not Aryans, but but Chinese. Yeah. So so there's a guy that you know was more related to the traditional Christian intellectual uh, values, yeah. right? And yet, okay, the the people that are in charge of the country is Nazis. So I guess that makes me a Nazi. Yeah. And here we go. And so, and these guys were situation because they're soldiers. Mm-hmm. So now they're fighting for that evil force. Yeah. And like you said, there's some denial. You also get caught up, and clearly the Germans got caught up in the nationalism. They got caught up. Hitler was a great orator and a mm. very moving speaker, and they got caught up in that, and they were in a very depressed economy. So those things all kind of came to head. They had been, in their mind, screwed over in World War One, and, you know, defeated and then treated badly Mm. and you know there's this whole thing about hitler's mustache you know hitler's got the funny mustache sure and there's some debate on on how much of this is actually true but whether it's true or not is a little bit it doesn't really matter because of what it represents so the the deal was that hitler's mustache if you wanted to have a a mustache during world war one because of wearing a gas mask you had to cut your mustache like that Hitler still wore his mustache like that. It was like a constant symbol that he remembered. Mm. He remembered because he was in World War One, mm. and he was wounded in World War One. And through, even despite all that insane sacrifice, they 
didn't win and they didn't like the way they got treated by the Treaty of Versailles. And so they had that angst. They had the economic angst. They had all those angst built up and Hitler came along and was ready to let them focus on something else. Mm-hmm. And and now what what Weeder is realizing here is like, yeah, he had us focus on something else, all right. And what he held, had us focus on wasn't good. It was evil. This is a crude analogy. You watch Training Day? I have watched Training Day. But that's yes. kind of the same thing when you watch because Jim. In you what know, way? Because the new, he's the trainee. By the way, did, when I see a movie, I, I see it like one time in an airplane and I don't yeah, pay attention yeah, to yeah. it. So I'm not, I'm not well, going to be fully familiar with uh, so comparing he, the rise of Nazi Germany well, and no. the deaths of millions of people to the movie Training Day. No, no, no. Well, and this is total speculation. This is just what we're talking about as far as like, you know, people, they're signed on. Hey, I'm German. You know, yep. it's cool. And, you know, we're all German. We're, you know, solidarity. We're German. And then kind of the Nazi party starts rising, starts gi- giving these sort of, sort of, certain types of influence and they're like oh all right cool i I mean i wasn't really thinking that but all right we're still germans we're cool and it starts escalating and slowly it's like okay so you can't you can't turn back that's what happens in training day right yeah like he he signed on he signed on and he's like dang he's like i don't know about all this but all right hey i'm signed on to the cause and after a while which is the same point that this guy got got to where it's like man okay you guys pushed it too much man i can't sign on to this and then you reflect back on all the violations, yep. you know, like and you start thing. to slip. You start to slip when you don't hold the line yes, on the yeah, little yeah. things. Exactly. That's what happens. Yeah. And that's what makes leadership hard. That's what makes life hard. Yeah. Is it's really easy to get tempted to go down these trails, these paths that are not what you should be doing. Right. And you got to kind of admit, man, it's hard because in the, in the beginning, like, you know, you're, you're going down a path, you're already signed on, right? And you see one teeny tiny violation. And it's like, what am I going to do? Like make this big stink about this teeny tiny violation? Yeah, yeah. For and sure. And then you're For like, sure. all There's... right, then you keep going. And then you had already made that exception. Yep. The time goes on. And what are you going to do? Bring and, that and little thing up again. About then? Psychologically, what uh, Denzel Washington He's he's he doesn't introduce he doesn't go straight to level eight violation right he Alonzo. just gives he just gives little yeah little violations teeny, to teeny move one. you down the path yeah a little bit of abuse there but hey we're yeah, fighting hey, bad hey, guys hey, so that's hey, all good and yep. then like a little like what, what, what you know yeah exactly right and that's that's what that's what Hitler did yeah that's what Hitler started with like hey you know we don't want to have this happening yeah we got to keep these things in check yeah 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 look we're gonna at least we're gonna we're gonna put the Jews in a neighborhood. Right, we'll put them in a separate neighborhood that way they're not amongst us. Right, yeah, yeah, put yeah. them over there, and, you know, mm. and it's okay. You know what? We're actually not going to. We're going to move them somewhere else. Yeah. We're going to put them in a work camp. Okay, and then you just right, you're slowly escalating yeah. before you're murdering two six million people. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, what? You're not signed on all of a sudden, yeah. kind of thing, and you're and like, then, dang, and, in your right. head, you're like, dang, I kind of wasn't signed on to some of the stuff earlier, but yeah. I had let it's it go, so now I'm trapped. You know, yeah. kind of thing. And now you're trapped, and that's where he is right now, and he's trapped facing his death. And recognizing, yeah, recognizing right. that, yeah, successively extracted the German people from the best of the commonly held European body of human thought. Like you're saying exactly what you just said. Success, successively, it's just a little yeah, bit at a, a time. Bit of time. Back to the book. All of us who wore a uniform were entangled in a fabric of developments and circumstances that we certainly had not sought or desired. Now, let's not make any excuses. 
Let's not make any excuses. Mm. But we see how it kind of happened, as you just said. Mm. We surely could not believe that our employment here in Stalingrad was part of a noble, legitimate battle for German interests. Painfully, we felt that the soldierly virtues of bravery, commitment, loyalty, and obedience to duty in their objective sense were being despicably misused. This deepened the tragedy of cruel events in which we now would have to atone for much that we had never wanted. So yeah. That's, um, you know, I've heard that argument sometimes. If you, well, you're going to kill, there's a bad regime. And you're going to go and you're going to attack the regime. And then some of the people that are just there by chance, you know, you hear that argument, well, they're allowing that regime to exist. Mm. Now that's a tough argument to have mm-hmm. because you got somebody for them to rebel could mean death, mm-hmm. and so they don't get they don't rebel, yeah. and so they, then they end up in a bad situation. That's a tough one. Yeah, fully. But somebody asked me the other day. So yeah, it's, it's along those lines. You know, some long-winded question on Twitter about what would you do if you were in a. In you, you know, in inside of a state that was blah blah, you know, repressive and et cetera, et cetera, and it was like a one word answer: rebellion. Mm. Now, would I have the mentality that I have right now yeah. if I grown up in one of those repressive states? Probably not. I'd probably yeah. just want to survive and get some more bread. Yeah, right. Yeah. I might not just be thinking, "Hey, there's there's something m- more important than me," yeah. and that's freedom. And maybe I wouldn't think that. Maybe I'd just be thinking, hey, I want some, maybe I can get an extra 20 grams of bread. No, bro, dang. All right, back to the book. In, this is good, in the proximity of death, things appeared in their true light and proper order. In such a situation, the Bible speaks to us with an insistence and clarity, the like of which we had never felt or understood before. The fear and misery at the edge of our existence had given us a religious experience whose strength-giving power bound us together. So he's starting to see, there's no atheist in a foxhole? Guess what? According to Weeder, that's a very accurate statement. Among my favorite books in the little private library I had taken with me to the Eastern Front was a copy of Marcus Aurelius's Self-Observations. I, too, had often found support and comfort in it. It had contributed markedly to completing my equipment for war by serving me as a suit of armor that protected me from all too frequent woundings by events and giving me an inner equanimity. Now, this book, too, like several others, had become meaningless. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world, with its merely human temporal comfort, had failed. It did not penetrate into the ultimate and most profound and could no longer stand firm in the terrible shock and helplessness whose mercy I felt myself to be in. In extreme distress with the ground shaking underfoot and a menacing abyss of nothingness seeming to open before me, there was only one last support, the comforting strength of the Christian belief. 
perhaps we could pass some of this comfort and support on to other comrades who, bewildered, were reeling toward the abyss. In their desperation, faced with the destruction of a whole world of concepts, and in a view of the senseless, senselessness of the catastrophe, many a soldier on the staffs, as well as within the fighting troops, had reached for his pistol to put an end to his life. There was no way back and no escape. Other disguised their secret fear and inner feelings of emptiness behind a contrived soldierly stance or even deliberately assumed the cast of mind of a Langschnecht. Which is like these guys were these old school German mercenaries that were super hardcore. If they themselves were doomed to go under, they would at least sell their skin so dearly to the end and take as many Russians with them as they could. Now that's interesting. He's he's projecting on these soldiers that you know that they're disguising their secret fear. You know what? I'm telling you right now that some of those Nazi German soldiers, they were they were getting after it, mm. right? They weren't they weren't hiding their their secret fear by acting tough they were ready to die for the Fuhrer Mm. so let's not just paint with a broad brush there in Mm. my opinion if uh, we agreed that suicide was out of the question for religious and ethical reasons as normal weak human beings caught up in error and guilt there was nothing left to to us but to drink the cup of suffering to the last bitter dregs Yeah. In the meantime, something unbelievable had happened and made quickly made the rounds. Our quartermaster, a still young general staff officer, had suddenly disappeared. His driver, who had taken him to the Gumrak Air Base, had waited in vain for his return. The lieutenant colonel was missing. He had silently left Stalingrad, left the Stalingrad pocket, the zone of death and destruction, on his own initiative. Probably it was a mixture of nerves, fear, cowardice, and the vain hope that in the general confusion he might be able to fly out and save his life that had tempted him to desert. The commanding general had made inquiries by radio. The deserting staff officer had shown up at Army Group claiming he had flown out on an official assignment from the Corps on matters of supply. Our general was wild with indignation and rage. He declared that he would have the criminal flown back into the pocket and shot before our eyes. We were all deeply depressed and and anticipated with horror the terrible scene that had been announced and which we were spared to our relief. Our quartermaster was shot outside the pocket on the spot where, in his fatal weakness, he had hoped to find a door to freedom and life. So again, even though I just talked about some of the Nazis being committed to the end, there was many of them that were just trying to get the hell out of there. Back to the book, our commanding general spoke openly of the impending collapse, accusingly and with bitterness and secret anger. He pointed out that it was not our fault we had gotten into this devilish situation of a catastrophe from which there was no longer a means of escape. Okay, here he is. The commanding general is now saying, hey, look, this is not our fault. So so clearly he's obviously not taking any ownership of this. But okay, so, so let me ask you this. Okay, Jocko, what would, how would it help him if he was to take ownership of it right now, right? Mm-hmm. If he was to say, hey, this is my fault, would it help him? Could, could, if he was to say, hey, look, this is my fault, this is why this happened, would that help him right now? No. You're right. It wouldn't help him. Would it have helped him 
a month or two months ago if he said to himself, look, we're in this situation, I need to take ownership of it and get it fixed. Would it have helped then? Yes. You're damn right it would have. He said, you know what? Hitler might not tell, might be telling us not to break out. Guess what? Hitler's not here. We're going to break out. I'll go get shot for defying his orders. That's mm-hmm. fine. I'll save all of you. That's that's where ownership would have come in. But what he said was, look, we're, we're, we're assigned to our fate. I talk about this all the time. Just because the boss tells you or doesn't give you the support that you need or gives you a bad order, that doesn't give you the excuse. You can't put the ownership on the boss. You're the one in charge. You take ownership of it. You get the problem solved. He didn't do that. So he he's, I don't want to say allowed to say it's not our fault, but he, okay, him saying it's not our fault is a kind of a different circumstance why because they're past the point of no return because they're, they're, they're doomed already yes because they don't have any uh you know take responsibility and then take responsibility for the um fixing the mistakes there is no fixing the mistakes anymore that's I, why if i was him yeah i would have said hey guys it's not your fault that you're here this is my fault i should have made a maneuver i should have stood up to the boss i didn't yeah, here's yeah. what we're going to do now to defend ourselves to the best of our ability Right, right. So that, then, that would still give the guys some uh, breathing room, right? Some psychological breathing room. Yeah. They fought hard. They did their best. It's my fault. I should have. I should have held you guys do something different, and I didn't. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do now. The fact that he that these that he wasn't taking ownership earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that he's able to blame now means he was mm-hmm. able to blame earlier. And if you're the minute you start blaming, you're not solving anything. You're not getting things done. There you yeah. go. Yeah back to the book but he left no doubt that together we still had a task to perform namely to namely to fulfill our soldierly duty duty to the last moment in obedience to the orders from above we would defend our perimeter fighting shoulder to shoulder with our carbines to the last bullet from his words we could surmise that he was staunchly determined to go down like a captain with his ship and not to survive the downfall of his troops unequivocally he pointed out that the commandments of the traditional ethical code of the soldier now demanded our ultimate sacrifice without demur now at this point he's supposed to go out and do a do like a reconnaissance of the lines and see what's going on and when he's up there, here's what he sees. In freezing cold and wild snow flurries, I rode across the desolate battlefield on a motorcycle together with a sergeant of the military police. We soon reached a road of catastrophic we soon reached the road of catastrophe arising dark gray against the backdrop of a snowbound step marked by all kinds of abandoned rubbish half covered cadavers of horses and wrecked vehicles scattered pieces of equipment crates destroyed weapons the dispersed the starving the freezing the sick but all those still fit for fighting had only one objective to which they were attaching their last glimmerings of hope and this objective was stalingrad in the protective walls of the cellars of the ruins, they might still be able to find some warmth, food, rest, sleep, and salvation. And so they streamed by the remains of the shattered and decimated formation, trains and rear echelon services with vehicles that were slowly being dragged and pushed by wounded, sick, and frostbitten men. There were emaciated figures among them, muffled in coats, rags, pitiful wrecks, painfully dragging themselves forward, leaning on sticks and hobbling along the fro- on frozen feet, wrapped in wisps of straw and strips of blankets. 
drifting along through the snowstorm. This was the wreck of the Sixth Army that had advanced to the Volga during the summer so confident of victory. Men from all over Germany doomed to destruction in a far-off land, mutely enduring their suffering, tottered in pitiful drove, droves through the murderous eastern winter. These were the same soldiers who had formerly marched through the large parts of Europe as proud conquerors. Now the enemy was at their backs, and death lurked everywhere. There's an interesting piece that I don't go into too much, but this guy had written a paper and presented it up the chain of command with uh, talking about what happened to Napoleon. And he got kind of told like, hey, that's not gonna happen to us. Back to the book, the events of 1812 seem to be repeating themselves after all. Once again, the uncanny Russian space was swallowing many tens of thousands of human beings. Despite Napoleon's experience, the basic elements of geography and meteorology had again been ignored to a frightening degree. On top of that, the modern superstition that with the help of machines and motors the impossible could be accomplished and the dangers of space overcome had also contributed to our downfall. And in a fatal pact with the overestimation of mechanized means of war had stood the misapprehension of the limits of human strength and possibilities. Yeah, repeat. Isn't isn't that another one of those classic lines? That's not going to happen to us. Oh yeah, Doesn't it, I mean it feels like yeah, yeah. You know. that's a classic mistake. It's called ego. Yeah, it's called yeah. lack of humility. Mm. Don't worry, that won't happen to us. Yeah, happened yeah. to Napoleon, one of the greatest you know military leaders of all time, but it won't happen to us because we have some cars. Yeah, yeah, we got some tanks mm. or whatever. But by the way, tanks tank fuel. Where's that fuel going to come from? Mm. I mean, at least a horse can eat a piece of hay, right? <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There, there's no Exxon station out there on the steps. No. Back to the book. Together with several wounded, we dragged ourselves onwards until exhausted and shattered, we finally reached the ruins of rubble of northern Stalingrad city area. So now he's actually was retreating back to Stalingrad itself. <clears throat> what travails did fate still hold in store for us? Death, whom I'd faced more often and closely in recent days than ever before, was still refusing me. But his trusted companion for many weeks, hunger, was tormenting me with tenacious power, slowly making me ripe for the end. And Frost, the third murderer in the trio, had also bitten me by now as the constant stabbing pains in some of my limbs warned me. Separated from our staff, our group of officers found shelter in a dark, dirty cellar while our men went to ground in a neighboring pile of rubber rubble. This was to be the end of our flight and our last quarters. The army had once again addressed itself to OKH and pointing adamantly to the catastrophic situation had asked for immediate permission to surrender, which might possibly prevent still complete disillusion disillusion and total disaster. Hitler's answer had been a steely no. Forbid surrender, Hitler had radioed into the pocket on 25 January. The army will hold its position to the last man and bullet. Can you imagine being that freezing, hungry, tortured by 
the enemy at your back and you got some guy in a, in a nice <laughs> ridiculous and it's one thing to be like yeah we're going to the last minute the last bullet and it's this big war but it lasts you know i don't know a week not even a week you know like the that one big last stand and we're gonna yeah. fight to the death that's one thing and I, I dig it and that's you know but just weeks and weeks and weeks of just slowly dying of starvation yeah. and sickness and that's uh, way different <laughs> to, it's way different to try to fight till the last man and the last bullet in that scenario yeah especially because they they all kind of know that there's no strategic advantage that to what they're doing even worse Back to the book, Colonel General Paulus and his chief of staff, whose fanatical will to hold out was well known among the staffs, relentlessly held on to their fatal decision. On their part, many generals and their staffs remained the executioners of the orders of destruction. Under these sorry circumstances for fighting, suffering, and dying continued. Torturingly and terribly, after the splitting of the pocket, the death agony of the army continued for a further week. In the general dissolution and catastrophe, it was every man for himself. More and more order and discipline broke down here and there in the cellars. The still able-bodied and combat-worthy hid among the sick and wounded. Cases of uncomradely conduct, theft of provisions, refusal to obey orders, and open mutiny mounted. It's a little late. The elementary drive of self-preservation no longer allowed the question of right or wrong to be raised. And in the same way that the differences between the front line and rear line and the rear echelon were being erased, so were the differences in rank and position. In the final days, summary law was imposed in Stalingrad with drastic punishments for any crime. Looters were to be shot within 24 hours. Hundreds of German soldiers who had become weak in their misery thus became victims of German bullets. One could no longer generally speak of courageous and heroic fighting. Certainly here and there, there were individual deeds of courage, personal initiative, and noble self-sacrifice. But by and large... Only a mute submission to the inescapable fate remained to the bitter end. It was rather the silent heroism of acceptance of suffering and submitting. Not the picture that gets painted very often. Now, at this point, at this point right now in this battle is when they hear that speech that Goring said talking about this great sacrifice and how they fought so well and how they'll be remembered forever mm. and compared them to Leonides and the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. It's just, and here's what these guys thought. With over-exaggerated, feverish pathos, the, the speaker recalled the heroic example of the last of the Goths and in the end, the historical, so famous sacrifice of the Spartan heroes at Thermopylae who had not fal faltered or given ground until the last fighter had fallen. And so it was at Stalingrad, just like Leonides and his loyal men in the Greek defile, so would the German heroes lie on the Volga as the law of honor and conduct in war commanded them to do for Germany. 
during this speech full of empty phrases and lies that outdid itself in hysterical glorification and praises the demeanor of the deeply delusioned and incensed audience became more and more hostile the glances, gestures, and words all around unmistakably showed the rage that was growing in people's souls. Whoever might still have trusted in the promise of help from the outside now had to recognize with growing horror that at home, where relatives still hoped for a union, the warriors of Stalingrad had finally been written off. We felt that we had heard our own funeral oration before its time. The disgusting adulation of the torturous dying of our army and the deceitful glorification of conditions that were against all laws of humanity filled me with indignation and revulsion. Must not Goring, Goring's words have pierced the hearts of our loved ones at home like daggers and robbed them of all hope now that they had been thrown into the most anxious fears of our, for our lives. At home we had been declared dead. The heroization and mythical glorification of our Stalingrad army was supposed to conceal the sad truth. For a long time now, the heroic tale of the German soldier on the Volga had become an irresponsible mass dying ordered from on high. The pathetic propaganda of glorification was obviously intended to distract from the catastrophic consequences of a criminally amateurish leadership of war and to prevent the question of blame from even arising. So you pretty much see how these guys felt at the end. And now you might think you might think that there's a disconnect between Hitler, like, hey, we're proud, we're fighting to the end, and this is the way the Germans are, and this is the way we are, we're superior. Mm-hmm. And that the guys on the ground, now they're just beat down, and so maybe they're just, maybe they're just weak, right? And they're just giving up. You might think that. You might think that. Here's, this'll give you a little indication that, that that's the wrong thought. On 1 February, the news spread among us that Paulus had capitulated with his staff and the two southern segments of the pocket and gone into captivity. So the leader just surrendered. At the last moment, he had been promoted to field marshal. This promotion in the hour of the final catastrophe was grotesque. It was simply a gesture of thanks from above and a goodbye. So Hitler thought Paulus was going to die. Well, he didn't. Paulus surrendered. But the unhappy field marshal did not set the example of heroism expected of him from the top. The German papers broadcast later Broadcasts later tried to spread the impression in the style of Goring's speech that in the face of overwhelming superiority, the field marshal had burned his secret papers and that the generals lying behind their machine guns had fought to the end. Furthermore, after the catastrophe, German magazines lied to the German people with faked pictures showing such heroic scenes. 
but the truth of the matter was something quite else. We calculated that more than 15 generals and their staffs had gone into captivity from the southern and central pockets. Soon soon the Moscow radio gave details of numbers and names. I was only to learn later that some of these generals had gone into captivity with neatly packed suitcases and plentiful baggage. They simply stopped fighting and gave themselves up to the victor without any further consideration for the fate of the remaining battle groups. The last request of the field marshal had been that the Russians should treat him as a private citizen. With this, he had resigned the official role he had formerly played in the military political interests of the supreme commander and, as a broken man, laid down his marshalship. He was driven away in a closed car and no longer needed to see the appalling misery of his sacrificed army. So there's no disconnect. The troops on the ground were right. These leaders were liars, weak. And they had no problem pursuing glory with someone else's ass, but they weren't ready to do it with their own. Deep down inside, I had increasingly begun to oppose certain military concepts of obedience, honor, and discipline like those that had been manifesting themselves to the end in the measures taken by our command. Was this only the, so this is, this week we went through all this and he's like, only now he's starting to oppose some of, some of his, his military concepts of obedience. Mm. If this was, was an American, see Americans are rebellious by nature. Mm. Like we don't, we don't, you know, if you, if you're leading us down the wrong path, we stand up and say like, no, you're not going to do that. Mm. Stop. Mm. No. He's, you know, here going, well. They've done all this, and only now am I starting to question these things. And he even questions his question back to the book. Was this only the revolt of my selfish instinct for self-preservation? Was it only an unsoldierly stance, fear, or cowardice at a time when things had become bitterly serious? Precisely at this point, I again remembered the awkward, deeply penetrating thoughts and feelings with which I had asked myself at the beginning of the war, why and for whom must you make this sacrifice? The same questions that had never really taken root rose again before me gigantically and and applicable to the whole army. Was there really a noble, high, holy objective at stake here in Stalingrad and in our battle? An ethically justified goal which could be served by ultimate human, human test of giving one's life? Did soldierly honor and obedience to orders really justify this demand so casually made of us that we hold out for this lost cause, this excess of suffering and dying? Was this immeasurable sacrifice really decisive for the outcome of the war and could it serve our country and our people? This is what this is. You want to know why we talk about the why all the time? There it is. Yeah. Now he should have been asking that question a long time ago. Mm. And he said he started to, in the beginning, he started to ask that question, but he didn't go through with it. Mm. You know why? Because they were winning. <laughs> they were winning. It's easy. Don't really need to know why. We're going to go out there, you know, beat this country, beat that country, mm. roll through that country. It's pretty easy. Not getting tested. Yeah. 
Back to the book. A foreboding I had long held grew into a terrible certainty. What was happening here in Stalingrad was a tragic, senseless self-sacrifice, a scarcely credible betrayal of the final commitment and devotion of brave soldiers. Our innocent trust had been misused in the most despicable manner by those responsible for the catastrophe. We had been betrayed, led astray, and condemned. The men of Stalingrad were dying in betrayed belief and in betrayed trust. In my heart, the bitter feeling of, and all for nothing, became ever more torturing. In my soul arose again the whole abysmal disaster of the war itself. More clearly than ever, I appreciated the full measure of misery and wretchedness of the other countries in Europe to which German soldiers and German arms had brought boundless misfortune. So he's reflecting and he's looking around saying, look what we did to all these other countries. Had we not so far the victors been all too prone to close our eyes and our hearts and to forget that always and everywhere the issues were living human beings, their possessions, and their happiness. So like you said, he turned a blind eye. He rolled through all these countries. He did all that evil. Probably only a few among us had entertained the thought that the suffer of the thought that the suffering and dying being caused by our sorry profession of war would one day be inflicted upon us. We had carried our total war into one region of Europe after another and thereby destructively interfered with the destinies of foreign nations. Far too little we had asked the reason why. The necessities and justifications for what was happening or reflected on the immeasurability of our political responsibility that these entailed. Misery and death had been initiated by us and now we were inexorably coming home to roost. They were inexorably coming home to roost. The steppe on the Don and the Volga had drunk streams of precious human blood. The Russians were certainly also making cruelly high blood sacrifices in the murderous battle of Stalingrad, but they who were defending their country against a foreign aggressor knew better than we why they were risking their lives. Yeah, the Russians, they're fighting, they're dying for sure, but they know that they're defending their homeland. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier for them to understand. Many officers and commanders now began to oppose the insane orders emanating from the Fuhrer headquarters and being passed on by army command. By this, they they began to reject the long eroded military concepts of honor and discipline to which the army leadership had clung until the end. In the unconditional obedience such such as was fatally being upheld here in Stalingrad, there was no longer a soldierly stance, but rather a lack of responsibility. So I'm going to say that one more time. This idea that unconditional obedience was, was, was not seen right now as a soldierly stance, but a lack of responsibility because you are responsible to do something if, if you're getting bad orders you're responsible for not obeying them and you know i get asked this question all the time not all the time but you know sometimes people say what if you got you know what did you do if you ever got told something that you didn't believe in i was like well we were all on the same page like Hmm. it's not like we were getting told to do things that were immoral unethical you know they weren't saying hey go burn this village with women and children in it we weren't getting those orders (laughs) you know what i mean we weren't getting told to do things that 
that weren't that I didn't agree with or that my guys didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And and that's the way the like are there are there pockets where things happen? Yeah, absolutely. That's what that's the horrors of war. Mm-hmm. But if we got told to do things that we didn't think we should do, we'd have said no, not doing it. Mm-hmm. This was open mutiny. So they've gotten to the point now, finally. Since there were no more orders from the center towards the end, many responsible commanders and unit leaders on the line acted on their own initiative in an endeavor to stop the senseless shedding of blood. Many desperate Stalingrad warriors in the end sought a way out by suicide or by voluntary by a voluntary soldier's death. We learned of two generals who extremes whose extreme resolution had been shattering. One, the commander of a division from Dresden had shot himself after having ordered his son, a young lieutenant, to report to him to say farewell. The other, the commander of a division from Lower Saxony whose tactical emblem was a four-leaf clover and was known therefore as the lucky division who did not want to survive the downfall of his men had been killed on the front line while standing erect and firing his weapon. The last pockets of resistance, what was left of about six shattered divisions and the remnant of other formations that had meanwhile been left to their fate by the resignation of the army command now had to bear the whole burden of the concentrated air attacks, artillery, and mortar fire. It was not only the fear of the coming end, the hunger clawing at my intestines and the pain from my frozen limbs that turned the last seemingly endless hours in the Stalingrad pocket into the tortures of hell for me. The proximity of death tore the last obscuring veils from my eyes and brought fruits of long years of individual experiences, observations, tormenting feelings and thoughts into an instant maturity. Now, on the very edge of being, war in its for us most terrible form became the inexorable revealer of all things. He's going through like spiritual awakening as he faces death. Mm -hmm. In my mind's eye, the horrible experiences and pictures of destruction that would not leave me in peace by day or night were strung together in a bloody chain. Experiences and impressions stretching far into the past that suddenly awoke in my sharpened memory I discovered to be logically connected links of this fatal chain. What had formerly always caused me to have nasty premonitions and apprehensions, what had always disquieted me, I now suddenly had to recognize as having been the warning of a fatal, fundamental evil, the dimensions of which I had thought not thought possible. Now, faced with the eminently impending catastrophe, the question about the sense of what was happening had plagued me so often during the war seized me again with cruel force. Hundreds of thousands of flowering human lives were suddenly being senselessly snuffed out here in Stalingrad. What an immeasurable wealth of human happiness, human plans, hopes, talents, fertile possibilities for the future were thereby being destroyed forever. The criminal 
insanity of an irresponsible war management with its superstitious belief in technology and its utter lack of feeling for the life, value, and dignity of man and here prepared for us a hell on earth. How could the long-eroded concepts of honor, duty, obedience, soldierly heroism figure any longer into our feelings, thoughts, and actions? To stay alive, to be reunited once again with our loved ones at home, this burning desire was now the drive behind all thoughts and actions. Gradually, we had accustomed ourselves to the, to the idea of surrendering at the first opportunity and going into Russian captivity. In the end, I basically had only one wish, to stay alive and healthy and go into captivity unwounded. So that's it. Goes into captivity. Um, You know, after going through a, 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 I don't know if you want to call it a spiritual awakening of recognizing that his whole life had been doing something evil. Yeah. In the and it's it's pretty anticlimactic how it happens, how they get how they end up in captivity. Back to the book. In the early minutes of captivity, I felt an easing tension and and relief. In the end, the insecurity of our situation between life and death had weighed down on all of us like lead. <clears throat> what first attracted my attention? So now they're captured. What first attracted my attention? <laughs> imagine this was the fresh, healthy appearance of the victors. Their simple, enviable winter clothing and good weapons, submachine guns everywhere, and the uniform picture of sheepskins, padded jackets, felt boots, and fur caps with broad earmuffs swinging up and down. The warmly bundled up, well-nourished, and splendidly equipped men of the Red Army with their chunky, mostly red-cheeked faces formed a stark contrast to our deathly pale, filthy, bearded, and freezing figures of misery who hung exhausted and sick in their makeshift winter clothing consisting of all kinds of furs, blankets, scarfs, field-gray headgear, woolens, and inadequate footgear. This sudden meeting and comparison at once showed me how low we had sunk and how little we had been prepared for this murderous battle. And the Soviets kind of, the Russians kind of have their shots at them. Fritzy, fascist, Hitler kaput. They alternated threats and obviously dreadful curses and contemptuous spit. Like raging wolves, vengeful soldiers from the rear echelons fell on the helpless victims time and time again to steal personal baggage and to vent their spleen. So now they're captured and the, the Russians start to kind of sing and dance and, and sing an old folk songs. Back to the book, all the noise and exuberance surrounding me formed a shrieking contrast to the inner and outer state which I found myself. 
torn from my circle of comrades, left to myself and my emotions in the midst of the joyful dancing and singing victors with whom no contact could be established. In my inner heart, I felt abandoned and without hope, totally depressed, uprooted, cut off from home, sunk far away, subjugated to a foreign will, piteously, piteously thrown to the mercy of an unknown powers to be dependent on the whim of the victor, constantly watched, menacingly surrounded by barbed wire and guns, forced to relinquish any kind of external freedom. Captivity meant an unknown form of human submission and humiliation. It is a bounty for us human beings that a merciful hand covers the future from our eyes with an impenetrable veil. That's a really great line. Had I known then that I was destined for more than seven comfortless years, devoid of love and filled with previously unknown mental and physical tortures and fearful uncertainties on the borderline of life, I never would have found the strength to stand the sufferings of the initial hard months of captivity. He's saying if he would have known what the future held, seven years he's about to be in captivity for, he wouldn't have even made it through. He would have given up. And he doesn't talk in this book about what that imprisonment was like, but he does give what I think is a combination of how he survived it and what he learned from it going back to the book time and again. I was soothingly distracted from my tormenting thoughts and dark visions by the wonders of the brightly shining star-filled winter sky that appeared to be so close to the touch. It constantly drew my eyes upwards as if by magical force. What had so far appeared to me as the downfall of a world come loose at the seams and a catastrophe without bounds suddenly took on measurable dimensions. I regained my equilibrium and found my way back to myself. Where I had felt earlier that chaos was swallowing me up, now calm and peace was flowing into my disquieted heart. The reconciling effect came from the vast order and harmony that the sparkling mass of bright stars with their eternal laws of the universe brought back to my attention anew. The consolation that the stars sank into my soul was strange and hardly to be grasped by the intellect. It seemed to me as if my personal fate within the framework of events on earth was secretly included within the vast all-embracing order of the cosmos. For the mass of survivors who had escaped from the hell of Stalingrad, the aftermath of the tragedy lasted only for a short while. They died in their tens of thousands during the early months of captivity. Hunger and deprivation Frost and sickness had already made them a sure prey for death even before the fighting stopped. With the columns of prisoners, death also came to the various camps of reception where terrible epidemics raged everywhere. 
and exact accounting of the victims of Stalingrad according to numbers, dates, and individual fates will never be made. The few that were allowed to begin a new life at home and in freedom after long years of captivity will always have to ask themselves how they can justify the deaths of the others by their own existence, how they can uphold and fulfill the legacy of their dead comrades. But all Germany must also loyally remember its many, many sons that lie at rest in the distant Russian steppe and try today and in the future to understand their unforgettable sacrifice. The innumerable mounds of soldiers' graves in Stalingrad have long disappeared. The cemeteries were leveled soon after the battle and partially converted to soccer fields. Nothing is left of the army of simple gray crosses. But it is as if a great invisible cross were rising there on the Volga, casting its shadow over our nation and addressing, penetrating, admonishing words to all of our hearts. And that closes out this book with with some penetrating and admonishing words for us because there's a lot of warnings in this book, warnings that we must pay attention to. And if we don't pay attention to them, then who will? The warnings, the lessons here. First of all, as a nation, as a culture, we have to look at the way things fell apart in Germany. Or maybe you look at the way things came together slowly, like we talked about. The traditional values were were moved aside and they were replaced with these new values, values that allegedly protected the German citizens. They were values that were gonna make the world a better place. And he uses this term, this political religion. That's a powerful thought. Political religion took hold And then he used that term, presumptuous beliefs that countered the foundation of their existing cultures and beliefs. So there's some arrogance involved there. We have people that aren't even listening to the counter arguments. I think we have to be careful not to abandon the structures of the past in some kind of a race to move to the future because the future, it hasn't been tested by thousands and thousands of years of human evolution. And I understand that we, we, I'm not saying we don't progress and I'm not saying we don't evolve, but I'm saying you don't bow down and you don't submit You got to think about 
the direction that we're heading and as citizens as people we have to have the courage to stand up before we reach the event horizon from which there's no return so now on a smaller level lessons from this book as as a as a person in business or in the military or in any team as a subordinate and we're all subordinate to someone we have to question our leaders and and i say that all the time if we don't agree with a plan or don't agree with a tactic you you got to question your leadership and you got to raise your hand but if we know that the intent of our leadership is malevolent or it's going to cause suffering human suffering on a grand scale or on a minor scale you have to we have to say no and do what is right no matter the consequence no matter the consequence and you know finally for us as individuals We got to remember that we are in charge of our own lives. We are leading our own lives. And where are you leading yourself? What are you doing that you know you shouldn't be doing? Why are you doing that? What catastrophe are you heading toward? You don't have to be heading towards that catastrophe you have the opportunity to prevent catastrophe in your own life but in order to do that once again you have to stand up you have to do the right thing you have to be uncomfortable you have to impose the discipline on your own life so you don't have something else imposed something bad imposed so you don't have a catastrophe imposed on your own life because when we avoid the discomfort and when we avoid the discipline and when we avoid doing what we know is the right thing to do that's when you end up in a personal catastrophe in your own personal hell in your own personal stalingrad You have to do the hard thing, the thing you know is right. And you know what is right, and you know what you are supposed to do. So do it. And avoid going down a path that leads To your own personal hell and instead get on the path that leads to freedom and I think that's all I've got for tonight so echo speaking of doing the right thing sure maybe you could give us some ideas um, on how we can you know continue down the right path doing what we know we're supposed to do sure 
Sure. The part where you said, you know, you're less likely to raise any questions or you're more likely to turn a blind eye mm-hmm. when you're winning. Remember when you said that part? Yes, I did say that. <clears throat> like on the UFC boiler room. Am you I see wrong? That? No, 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 you're right. Oh, you yeah, seen boiler, that? Room, boiler, boiler room. Boiler room, yeah. Yeah, so the what guys, are, there's a part where he's in the, they're waiting to go to a party or right. something. You know, they're they're selling stocks, yep. right? And they're they're like garbage stocks or whatever. They're inflating know. them. Yeah, they're like, yeah, all this them. stuff. <clears throat> so Pump and dump. Yeah. And so they're in the car going to some party and he's like hey it was, who was it giovanni whatever the actors names are they uh he's like hey do, he goes, do you ever wonder how how we get these big commissions on these you know so and he's like that's the wrong question to ask you know and he's like wait what do you mean he's like he's like just just don't ask that question basically he said don't ask that question he goes don't you like the way things are going he goes, he's like yeah but I, I do i do but don't you ever wonder he's like no i like being a millionaire same exact thing when you're winning it's easy to turn the blind eye you know <laughs> Good point. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I guess that can apply to well, a lot yeah, of stuff. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that you point that out. And I think that, um, like, on a personal level, right? Let's yep. say you're doing really good. Yeah. It's Then it can be tricky for people to do the right thing, yes. too. Because that's why we see, like, these uh, celebrity, like, movie stars or celebrity athletes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Man, they do some dumb stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. do some dumb stuff because they're winning. They're thinking they're good. They yeah, can yeah, do whatever yeah. they want. Yeah. They make the wrong choice. Yeah, and then they're on the uh, evening news doing dumb stuff you know, that and, ruins them. Yeah, puts and, uh, them in their own personal Stalingrad, puts yeah, them in hell. You know, yeah, even yeah, with money too. You know, you know, like and celebrity types and you know athletes who even just people, people who yeah, like, yeah, get well, a good yeah, job or, or their business blows up or whatever. Start yeah, well, I guess yeah, money. I guess any any type of winning we could look at. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're necessarily doing the right thing. It yeah. can be harder. My point is, and I think you're saying the same thing. Yes, it can be harder. Yeah, to do the right thing when you're winning because you just think you're yeah good to go. You get arrogant. Yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not put brakes on this train here. Just let it all fly, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, we're and then good. when the train kind of loses momentum, meanwhile, all those those things that you've been ignoring, they're still there. Hey, you know, look at your empty bank account. You spent all that money. You're supposed to keep. Before you made budget, or money, you were budgeting, right? You're budgeting. You're surviving. You're budgeting. You're doing good. You started making all this money. You started spending all this money. When the money stopped coming in, your budget is <laughs> gone. I'm just saying that's what happens. Sometimes. It can happen. Yeah. Also, pay now or pay later. I remember that one. That was a good one that you said. Yeah. Did I say that? Yeah. Pay now or pay later. We're, I think we're talking about like working out or something. Oh, yeah. So you're, like, I didn't say it today, though. No, no, no. Oh, not today. In the yeah, past. Yeah. Pay now or pay later for sure. Stuck with me. Nonetheless, support. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Good way to avoid going down your personal. I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Nonetheless, if you're in the mood to support. You don't good, want to end up in your own ways. personal Stalingrad. Yeah. Right. But I don't know why supporting would like prevent that. You know. Well, you're. No, yeah, no, no. no. We'd Good be point. reaching pretty deep for, but nonetheless, normally, you don't, the, normally you don't have any aversions to reaching deep. <laughs> <laughs> you were reaching deep today. This, this one is too Stalingrad <laughs> training day. No, no, those were conceptually they were the same thing. They were. I know the compare. It's you know most of Echo's these world. Most of these like lessons. I think I feel like they're kind of everywhere. You yeah, know? of course. And you know, you talk about these heavy wars yeah. and heavy like events, and then you yeah. know, in my mind, I'm thinking training. Hey. <laughs> you know, but the you know the idea is still hey, it's the same. There's, I think there's people out there 
in various states of mind. Sure. And I think that, you know, your perspective helps them maybe get, maybe yeah. see some of what I'm saying because maybe I'm, I'm hitting them from the wrong angle. So, yeah. you know, you're coming in from training day and <laughs> movies and, <laughs> yeah. hey, man. Yeah, actually, and, th- and come to think about it, these concepts right here today, when you're saying, you know, uh, you know, when it's going, we'll take, for example, when it's going good, it's easy to turn a blind eye. Isn't that kind of a lot of movies how it is? It's like the guy does real good and he's just c- kind of going and it he he messes up in one way or another. Yeah, like, pretty I think, much I think there's a talk by Kurt Vonnegut and I've seen it on YouTube. I think it's Kurt Vonnegut. He's like teaching a class. You know Kurt Vonnegut is? Yeah, yeah. He's teaching some class. Like he's just guest teaching in some class, yeah, which yeah. is pretty awesome. But he's t- talking about like there's four plot lines and they're all pretty much the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but, I think but that's seven. one of yeah. you're you you have nothing and then you get everything. Yeah, okay, and then like you kind of abuse it. And then there's then there's you have nothing, you get everything, you lose everything, and then you get everything back. He's yeah, just got these yeah. it's like I forget them all, but yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah it makes they're, sense. They're common um common storylines. Yeah, and they must be kind of I mean they must be, right? Based on real life like like term like scenarios that you go through well, in I, life. Well, I think it's you know? why there's like things lessons. like comeback story, yeah, Cinderella yeah, yeah. story, comeback kid. I mean, those things yeah, yeah. really exist. Underdog story. Underdog. Yeah. yeah. Triumphant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how. Nonetheless, if you're in the mood to support and, you know, between your movie watching <laughs> escapades. Is that the correct word? Escapades. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't recommend it. I recommend you read. Yeah, but yeah, whatever. Read. Training day, maybe we'll get you there. <laughs> sure, <laughs> that was a good one. I thought. Anyway, nonetheless, Origin Maine. Isn't it get, weird that like Training Day is this movie that co- how much does it cost to make Training Day? I don't know. Fifty million dollars, and like you can go to the library and get Stalingrad the book. Yeah. For nothing, literally nothing. Yeah. Or you can buy it. For, you can buy it on Amazon for I think this book costs like a dollar. Yeah. Because yeah. it's used. So, but it's just kind of a strange dichotomy there. It's interesting for sure, and yeah, uh, you know, obviously we can go into why. And which one is better know. for you? Because I'm going to go ahead and say that Stalingrad's better for you than Training Day. Well, it depends on what you get out of it. You know, you know how like people I mean, are asking me. It. Actually, people have been asking me, how do you read to get the most out of it? Yeah. Out of a book? How do you? Well, I read it. While I'm reading it, I highlight it. Oh yeah, Jordan B. Peterson. I was watching something the other day. Don't highlight anything. Yeah, this is the this I have a major disagreement with Jordan B. Peterson on not highlighting. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm highlighting fool, but uh, anyway, so I go through, I highlight what hits me, and then I go back and reread it, and then I have the red pen to circle the important, really that, yeah, important. That's things. what I do too yeah. on the Kindle. It you can choose your um, your color of highlighter. So the yellow is general highlighting, um, and then the orange. Yeah, stepping it up. Nonetheless, all right. Well, how about this? We'll talk about some jujitsu geese. Because people ask me, yeah, Which what geese should I get? You get origin geese. That's it. Made in America from the threads, from the cotton. Mm-hmm. As I always say, as we all know, made in America. Dirt to the shirt. Dirt to the shirt. Have you said that before? Field to finish. No, I just was up there. I was just up at the factory with Pete. Oh so yeah, I, I caught the Facebook live. I got, it, I got it on my head, on my mind. <laughs> Dirt to the shirt. Is Dirt that Pete's line? Dirt that, to shirt. I think it might be just like. Yeah, it might be dirt oh, to shirt. Might be field to finish. Hands in daylight. Hands in daylight. Yeah. But yeah, make some good stuff, especially geese in America. Like I said, um, good in jujitsu. You know, I ha- I have a few geese. I have a few geese. I don't use any of them except the origin ones. 
Go to OriginMain.com. That's where you can get your gi for jujitsu. They also have rash carts, compression gear, mm-hmm. right? And that's for jujitsu, I think, primarily. But you can use it for other stuff, of course. Yeah. Indeed. Big time. Also, Jocko has some supplements. Good supplements. Mm-hmm. Krill oil. I was talking to kid's name is Josh from Virginia Tech mm-hmm. at training. Seen him a couple of times there. And I think he was here for you know a few weeks or whatever mm-hmm. training. And uh, you know, so we talk about something. He's young, he's 21. And he's mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, I take fish oil. I was like, dang, <laughs> that's good. I mean krill oil is better than fish oil. I know this because my the, the, I told you why already. My wife's dad told me yeah. all the benefits, blah blah blah. Nonetheless. But He's taking joint supplements at 21. He said, no, I don't have problems with my joints, but I just want to maintain this joint situation as I get older. I was like, bro, you're way ahead of me, son. Um, so I gave him some of your uh, joint warfare. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Pete, Pete from Origin, he, he's, he needs joint warfare. He can feel it dissipate in the day, and like when I was 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 with was with him, he'd be you know at five o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, "Man, hold on, I'll be right back. I'm gonna take some joint warfare." So he's at the, like no, he's, he's at, at the threshold. Yeah, he's you know at the threshold. I mean? He's he, like that. He kind needs of, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh yeah, and that's actually it's interesting because you know you can see what's selling, and what's cool is you can see joint warfare krill oil. Like what's awesome about it is it the repeat customers of people that order it. Yeah. Then they ordered again, and then they ordered again. Yeah, because you don't order it if you're not feeling it. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's how I am with the krill oil. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Like if yeah. you like, I'll forget, and I'll be like, mm, you know, like oh, I'll take it later. I don't right. forget. And the, yeah, I know you. You know, you're you're Don't you have Don't I you have a uh, morning routine I or do. whatever? See, and that's the thing. That's the thing. It the doesn't r- include just wake up, boom, boom, boom. For me, medicine cabinet open. My all my stuff is right there. No, and to uh, it, not to go too too deep into my routine, but during the week it, it's. You know, wake up and then there's like my daughter's four and a half. She has school. So there's that situation going on. This is not with mine. This does not interfere with you getting up and taking some pills for before you brush your teeth. Kind of. not. See, that's the thing. The routine doesn't allow for me to take them before I brush my teeth. It's part. It's the routine, man. It's the routine. Put it in the routine because for me, you got to you got to you got to take the pills before you brush your teeth because when you brush your teeth, you got the strong mint in there and it makes the water like too cold in your teeth. Yeah, see, (laughs) and I like that. I think it's more refreshing. Oh, see, maybe maybe I need to harden up a little bit. Maybe. Check. Probably. Nonetheless, sometimes I forget three, four, and if if you forget for like four days and you're still working out or whatever, you'll feel it. I will feel it. So same thing, krill oil. I need it. Yeah, I had Leif actually, actually Jenna, Jenna brought me krill oil in oh, New York because I forgot mine. Forgot I was it. like, bro, that's okay, and I don't want to ask for it. Level Leif, seven panic. I mode. forgot my krill oil. Bring me some. Yeah, like you know, I don't want to do that, but bro, it was, it was important. Yeah, level Nonetheless. seven panic mode. Yeah. Nonetheless, krill oil. Back to krill oil. Jacquez krill oil. Super krill oil. It's a super. It's super krill. It's not normal crow, it's super. And there's many reasons for that. You can find out on the website or domain.com if you want to know those exact reasons. Also, joint warfare, that's for your joints. Maintain your your body structure while you're working out. Good call. Because it does um dissipate. I didn't want to use the word dissipate, but what do you but call you it? Did. Degenerate. Degenerate. Sure. After time. When you when you go hard in the paint, mm-hmm. it does. <laughs> Unless, like I said, they got compression gear, geese, rash guards, other stuff, hoodies, which 
may or may not be the most comfortable hoodies and pants <laughs> by the way the sweatpants joggers apparently they're joggers called. yeah so the the other day i'm like okay i'm exporting some special effect that i did so i'm like shoot when when you export it's like you can't really use that program you know you can export I me mean, it's a long story but so i'm like okay i'm off my computer for you know it's gonna take like 10 minutes a big effect so I lay on the couch and I have the whole origin <laughs> outfit on for whatever reason just kind of uh, happened to you. I lay on the couch and I'm like, dang, I don't think I've felt this comfortable in a long time. But it was everything. And this but is com- that's that's pretty bold statement because you are a very a experienced <laughs> level of comfort. Com- I'm a know, comfort seeker. Yes. 100%. Yeah, so, and I evaluate. You evaluate various comfort levels. Levels, yes. And this was high. <laughs> It have very well been one of the highest. I get it. It was everything. It was the couch. It was the time of day. It was the fact I that I usually don't lay around. You know, I that lived time. with one of my uh, SEAL buddies for many years. We were kind of just just young, dumb frog mm-hmm. men. We had this yellow couch that was like 14 feet long. <laughs> and it was That's kinda not, dope. It was like f- maybe five feet deep. Dang. It was and like a bed. Couch. No, realistically, it was like five feet deep. Was when you threw the back cushions off, it was mm-hmm. five feet deep, and it was probably 12, 12 feet long. And where was this? In, in, your, in, in our apartment. In your apartment. Yeah, it was <sighs> gold. Dang, it was gold felt. Yeah, yeah. But we got it from some shop. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind you have in like a lounge. We paid or eight dollars for it. Or something. <laughs> We had one like that at UH in the in the football lounge. Yeah, it was like it was wasn't the most comfortable couch. Awesome, you know, you know that couch you were looking at tonight in my house. And you're like, yeah. oh, that's a nice couch. This thing, that couch out there, yeah. all nice. Yeah, doesn't even come close to the comfort of the old gold couch. Yeah, it's that weird. Thing was the deal? Yeah, it's weird how like ugly like couches will be the most functionally mm-hmm. comfortable. We had this one. My wife forced us to give away. And because it was outside, it got phased out slowly. Mm-hmm. You know how you get a new couch and you're like, okay, what are we going to do there? Well, I'm not going to give it away because no. it's too comfortable. And we've had it for so long and it's like in good shape. <laughs> oh, and then we get another couch for the, you know, for the side there. Oh, we're going to do this. So, and so it ends up outside, you know, and you can't have a couch, a couch outside. outside. It's like, it's kind of, you know, doesn't, doesn't look good, blah, blah, blah. Gave it away. But it was the most comfortable couch. I think we actually know the new one's more comfortable. I don't know what I'm talking about. Nonetheless, back to origin. Go to originmain.com. That's it. That's where you get it. And you can get the discipline there too. Yeah. 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 The discipline. <laughs> Big time. The pre-workout. The pre-mission. The pre-mission. The pre-mission, yeah. I shouldn't say. It, it, to me, I take it before I work out. See, I don't. I take it before I jujitsu. Yeah. Or I take it before I have to do a podcast. Or I yeah. take it before I have to do um, like, an, like a speaking event where I need to, my brain has to be firing. Yeah. Yeah. Could you take it before bed? I mean, I know it has a little bit of caffeine, but like. I have. And I think you can't. I don't think I'd strongly recommend it, especially if you're caffeine sensitive like I am. I'm caffeine sensitive. But you you drink nine monster energy drinks a day. You can drink whatever you want from Jocko White tea because there's a lot less caffeine. Well, you figure the discipline. Actually, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people hit me have used Jocko White tea to wean off of full strength coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For because sure. they don't want to be on that coffee, but there's enough need caffeine. Little. They need a little something yeah, yeah, yeah. to wean off. It's like methadone <laughs> getting off heroin. So you might yeah. want to try that. You know, the Jocko White you won't have coffee breath anymore. Yeah. Because no one likes that. Yeah, it's no probably one. it's probably not like methadone. But since the uh the pre workout, pre 
mission has uh, cognitive enhancers. You figure, mm. you know, when you sleep, that's like the best part of your brain recover yeah, or best yeah. time for your brain to recover. Maybe yeah. that's a little something. I don't recommend it because, like I said, but you never know. Could be. Could be something. I wouldn't drink it before I go to bed. Maybe when you wake up. Yeah, but I don't drink it when I wake up. I'll drink it because I don't drink it for, I don't drink any kind of pre-workout for before I work out, before I lift weights, before I do a Metcon. I don't. Yeah, Maybe I, I should. I don't know. And you're not Maybe even I caffeine. One of the reasons because I don't like to have anything in my stomach when I'm working out. Yeah, but those pre-workouts is like. Yeah, I know. It's like, not really anything, right? No, it's just it's like, it's like water. Like water, yeah. Yeah. I'll, maybe I'll try it. Yeah, yeah, try it. Tell me. Report back, please. Okay, will do. Yes, sir. Also, speaking of working out, I get my kettle, kettlebells from Onnit. Onnit.com slash Jocko. This is where you get them. Kettlebells, the designer one. You don't have to get the designer ones. I know I always say the designer ones. Get the designer ones. And I'm still saying it. Mm-hmm. Oh, big time. So you don't have to. Like, you want to get the normal ones, get the normal ones. But nonetheless, Onnit, they have cool other cool workout stuff. You want your workout to be creative. <laughs> I'm telling you, like you know the you know the mace, right? Yeah. You have one of those. I have, I do. Yeah, I do you ever done like a mace, workout right? with a mace? Yeah, yeah. I incorporate them. My name for I've got two mace exercises, but one of them is called like because I have notes in my notebook on what my workout. Sure. And I have like barbarian smash. That's the workout. Then, no, no, no. That's, that's the, the movement. Oh, I the do. movement. Okay, I thought you made up that. And name. then one's like a battle axe swing. Sure. So yeah, yeah. It's like you can do those with the mace. Yeah, and the, the it, mace yeah. is heavy though. Well, you, like my very, mace is twenty pounds. Yeah, that's heavy for yeah, it's for heavy. Mace. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's and you heavy. You think it's heavy? Twenty pounds? That's you. How much does a baseball bat weigh? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. A couple pounds. Uh, yeah, I'm. And then you can put. Two. I saw a sixteen ounce weight the other day for the end of your bat when you're getting warmed up. Right. A mace is twenty pounds. Yeah, it's see, really heavy. And the to me, you gotta be it, careful actually. Yeah, big time. Yeah, because you, be you don't, don't expect that, that much weight on a on a no. mace with that weird. Because a twenty pound dumbbell, you think, ah, I'll that's that a joke. twenty. But that's not even part of the workout. That's I don't even joke. warm up with twenty pounds in any exercise <laughs> kind of attitude. And then you're like, so twenty pounds is so light. Then you pick up that mace and you're like, this is like the heaviest yeah. stick I've ever <laughs> held for sure yeah. in stick form. Yeah. Nonetheless, that's where you get them. There's other stuff too. It's really cool. So go on it. slash jocko and check it out. Get something. Also, subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, anywhere there where they broadcast uh, podcasts. Broadcast podcasts? Yeah. Spotify too, confirmed. Boom. Do it. Also, YouTube. If you want the video version of this podcast, if you want to see what Jocko looks like, you know, you're into that kind of stuff, look on YouTube. Also, have excerpts on there. Actually, someone emailed me and, and said, just for the excerpts, said, hey, thanks for putting excerpts on there. That's pretty cool. That is That's pretty cool to be person. like, yeah, just, hey, this is cool. So, obviously, it's a good thing. There are excerpts on there. That's a good thing. Yeah. Because sometimes the podcast goes a little long. Yeah. Especially this section. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think your two hours of reading, you know, that, uh, that's <laughs> reading a some random yeah, World some War random II book. book. Nonetheless, YouTube, some value there. I think if you, you know, you watch so certain people, they, they put it I'm up in their I'm going to do YouTube their, live some point. Yeah. Soon. On our, on the YouTube yeah, channel. Yeah, on our, our YouTube, YouTube channel. channel. Yeah. Jocko there you Podcast. go. Boom. Even more value. And send you an alert, right? I think if so. You want yeah, to. yeah. If you're subscribed. Yeah. If you allow the alert and you're subscribed, yeah, you can. Yeah. It's good. Nonetheless, YouTube, good way to support. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. That's where you can get all the cool shirts. They're cool. I think they're cool. All the shirts, discipline equals freedom. 
get after it. <laughs> There's e- even the shirt that Jocko wears every single day in his life. The Victory <laughs> MMA shirt. It's available. You can get it. You can get yep. it. Um, also, rash guards on there. Some cool stuff. Women's stuff on there. Hoodies, patches, hats. You know what? I'm going to make this commitment right now. I'm going to put something new every single. Well, I don't know. <laughs> what? You're not really <laughs> committal. <laughs> I'm like quasi committed. I don't know. Every month I'll put something new. Can people email you to tell you what they want? No. Actually, yes. Actually, I like that. Or maybe that email. Yeah, email. Yeah, email through the store or Twitter or whatever. Yeah, we do. Everyone does for sure. A lot of stuff is suggestions. Actually, a lot of stuff that's already on there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly right. Heavier duty sweatshirts, hats. Yep. Beanies. Beanies. uh, You know, they're on the way. Yes, but yeah, they're in the pipe for sure, hundred percent. Yeah, that's a suggestion. Yeah, these are all people suggestions from the field. Yeah, we'll say that. Yeah. So yeah, I take suggestions big time. I kind of I I pull the trigger on the ones that have the most suggestions. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I understand, you know, if you're like, hey, I made a suggestion and I still haven't what seen it. What if I it, made I, a suggestion? Well, well, you're the, you know, you're in the field too, and I dig it. But if you're the only one, sorry, bro, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I got no pull over here. Yeah, you got a little pull. Not that much, though. Nonetheless. Anyway, jockostore.com. That's the place. Also, Psychological Warfare. If you don't know what that is, here's what it is. It's an album that you can buy on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, anywhere where you can buy MP3 downloads. It's an album that you can buy with tracks. Jocko tracks. And this is what it's for. It's not music. It's not Jocko singing or playing guitar. What else do you play? ukulele now yeah ukulele you got that uke yeah the uke okay so jock's not playing that he's he's speaking to you pragmatic he's giving us us pragmatic advice on why or how i would say how to overcome certain points of weakness in our campaigns against weakness that's what it is so you know you want to skip the workout you want to cheat on the diet or isn't you're compelled to one day because you're you're feeling i don't know tired if you run into little speed bumps in your campaign listen to this there's a track for everything trust me just look at it what if instead of somebody wanting to watch training day they want to read one of these books where could they get them and what's the best way to shop for them while supporting this podcast glad you asked i got the solution right now this is what i did if you didn't know already here's what i did go to jockopodcast.com jockopodcast.com not the store it's the podcast website I organized all the books by episode in a section called Books from the Podcast. Click through there. Actually, that's a good way to support, too. Takes it to Amazon. Amazon Prime. Get the book in like two days. Boom. And it supports the podcast. Big time. Good what way to support. What if you buy things? Whatever you like, man. Long lawnmowers, duct tape. What else? Golf Rubber clubs. duckies if you have kids. You know what else you can get on uh, Amazon.com is you can get Jocko White Tea. When you get it, also order yourself some new weights because upon drinking Jocko White tea, you will be able to deadlift 8,000 pounds. Sure. Certified. You, oh, you got some new weights, didn't you? Yeah, I did. All right, we'll leave I it did. at that. It's all no. good. It's all good. <laughs> it happens. Uh, you can also get some books, some books uh, from you know that that I've kind of put together one of them is called way of the warrior kid that book teaches kids to do the right things 
in their lives study read work out eat clean help others work hard uh, get tons of feedback on that book because it helps kids they relate to it yeah. speaking of related to it there's a little warrior kid out there 12 years old his name is Aiden he reached out to me wanted he makes soap from goat milk did you hear the story? Yes. Makes well, soap. I didn't hear the whole story. Okay, he makes soap from goat milk. You know why he makes soap from goat milk? You can't do anything with goat milk in California. You can't sell it to someone because it's not edible or whatever. They have yeah, laws. The, laws the are regs, in place, yeah, right? The regs. the regs are in place. What do you do with goat milk then? He didn't know what to do with it. And then he figured out, I'll make soap. And then he wanted to make good soap. And so he said, hey, can I make some Jocko soap? And I was like, yeah, dude, you're 12 years old. Get after it. <laughs> and he that. did. Yeah. Irishoaksranch.com. You Put can a link order on the yourself. website. Too. You can order yours. Oh, it's on the lo- link on the website. Yeah, front page. So you can support a young or your kid, 12 years old, business owner. <laughs> so legit. Way ahead of me. Uh, Discipline equals freedom field manual. That's also about getting stronger, smarter, faster, healthier, and better. The audio version of that is not on Audible. It's on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play. It's an album with tracks, by the way. <laughs> sure. Actually, it's two albums yeah. with tracks. On top of that, we got Extreme Ownership, the book written by myself and my brother, Leif Babin. It's about combat leadership. That's what it's about. And if you want to learn how to lead, you can check out that book. Also, if your business team or your organization needs a little extra help, you can utilize our leadership consulting company called Echelon Front. You hear a lot of talk tonight about the rear echelon. That's why we named Echelon Front, Echelon Front. The rear echelon are the people in the rear. Echelon, the front echelon is the people in the front line, so that's why we named the organization Echelon Front, because there's a lot of people that talk about leadership, but they're talking about it from the rear echelon, from the back. Hmm. We're talking about it from the front our experiences on the front lines. We solve problems, whatever problems, through leadership. So that's our company, Echelon Front. It's me, Leif Babin, JP Donnell, Dave Burke. You can email info at echelonfront.com or the website. You can check it out if you want to. And finally, if you haven't heard yet, The Muster, Washington, D.C., May 17th and 18th, San Francisco, October 17th and 18th, We've had four of them in the past two years, actually like the last year and a half. They all sold out. This one's going to sell out too. It is a leadership conference where we drill down on how to lead. We give leadership tools, tactics, strategies that will allow you to lead and win Echelon Front. That's our event you can register for it, extremeownership.com. And if you want to continue to talking with us or you have questions or if you have answers, if you want to tell me a mistake that I made in the podcast tonight, which I'm sure I did, or you have comments you want to make as to what we do here, you can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on the face boha. Echo is Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And finally, thank you 
for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for spreading the word. Thanks to those of you that make this podcast possible. The men and women of our armed services that protect our freedom and especially in this case our right to free speech to the police firefighters paramedics and other first responders that are out there every day keeping us safe thank you and everyone else that is listening thank you for standing up and leading yourself leading yourself away from weakness and toward strength away from laziness and toward action away from comfort and towards the discipline away from catastrophe and toward victory keep leading and keep getting after it and until next time this is echo and jocko out